Hello, 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 ladies and gentlemen. How are you all doing tonight? Welcome to another live edition of The C Report. I'm your host, Mr. C, coming to you on this Thursday evening, December 16th, 2021. And I hope everyone is doing okay. Great to be here with you guys tonight. Hope all is well. And uh, we are ready to uh, get going and uh, kick with it tonight uh, with some uh, more news and views to help you move along through your week. Uh, Let's see, what do we got on the agenda for tonight, ladies and gentlemen? I think the the main thing we'll talk about today is going to be the Ghislaine Maxwell trial. Um, of course, as we all know, this uh, trial is in its, uh, what, third third week, no, fourth week now, if I'm not mistaken, fourth week. And, uh, oh boy, it's been uh, an interesting ride, or, yeah, maybe not. It's actually been, um, from all the articles I've been reading on it, uh, and the various uh, news agencies out there, reporters, journals, etc., um, the, the trial, of course, is very quiet, okay? Uh, I think today when I opened up my browser, I was actually surprised to see uh, a story in, you know, the main uh, carousel of headlines that they throw at you and uh, kind of force you to uh, uh, read. I was like, oh, okay. Uh, because yesterday when I opened my browser, you know, there was no mention of, you know, Ghislaine Maxwell and 20 stories. Uh, in fact, I thought there was a bit of distractions, of course, that is what they're there for. I think that's what they utilize some of these celebrities, you know, some of these celebrities. I think one of the ones I saw yesterday was uh, something about OJ Simpson. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I, I guess that will fill. I guess that will fill the news cycle. Uh, there were some other things going on, though. But, you know, uh, overall, I think uh, I think the theme of today's show and I think I think kind of where I might be uh, personally might be. Um, might be resting my uh, thoughts on as far as this trial goes uh, is that it is it is going to be a cover up trial. It is a cover up trial. It is a sham trial. Um, that's kind of where I'm I'm looking at this now. Like uh, you know, given uh, a lot of the information that we have seen uh, in regard to this trial so far, in in regards to a lot of the individuals, the cast of characters that are surrounding this trial, um, given the uh, location of this trial and where it's taking place in the Southern District of New York. And, uh, you know, the Southern District of New York, uh, it seems like, you know, uh, what was that? The um, the Ninth uh, Circuit of Appeals Court, you know, where they always have, you, you know, there's always a judicial area where you can send your uh, cases to particularly if you're, you know, an elitist, a globalist, a pedophile, um, you know, someone who's important, you know, you send those cases to those area and they take care of it for you. You know, they take care of it for you, Uh, you know, with their with their uh, corrupt judges, uh, their corrupt district attorneys, uh, everything, you know, and uh, that's why they say, ladies and gentlemen, and I would have to agree with this. You can have a corrupt executive, you can have a corrupt legislative, 
But if you have a corrupt judiciary, oh boy, are you screwed. <laughs> Interesting enough, uh, that is something that we are all um, really witnessing. And I would say in particular, dare I say it, in particular since the days of President Trump. The days that are no more. No, 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 no. I don't think those days are no more. Um, I just think, uh, I think that uh, those days... Um, are perhaps uh, working in the background somewhere, right? But, um, you know, we've known about corrupt judiciaries for decades. It's nothing new, ladies and gentlemen. You know, you always, uh, we always used to see those, uh, those movies or those stories uh, where it's like, oh, that, uh, that small town judge, he's corrupt as you know what. And uh, there's no way, you know, that they're going to they're gonna get away with it. You know, we've heard the stories dozens of times about, oh, you know, so-and-so's dad or so-and-so's husband. Uh, they play golf with the judge on the weekends, you know, and that was just one level of corruption, you know. Um, but again, major spotlight coming out on all types of uh, corrupt judiciaries. Um, and I think uh, aside from stories of corruption or you know, whether they're bought out, paid out, uh, if they're wined and dined, um, if they're made promises uh, by politicians, etc. Uh, you know, we've, we've seen a lot of uh, things come out this year uh, to include also judges that do not uphold the Constitution of the United States of America. So um, I myself am actually rather grateful uh, that we are able to discern it more. Uh, and of course, like I said, a corrupt judiciary has existed for centuries. Uh, let's go all the ways back to the time of Jesus, right? <laughs> well, they were corrupt back then too, you know, um, but um, I don't know. I feel like, I feel like now we can see it more. Now the stories come out more. Uh, now we can track it more. Now we understand it more. Um, now we get it. And then along with that, we can also connect the dots, right? Uh, when we start to look at who has appointed the judges, um, uh, what is the judges, uh, you know, how do they rule on cases, you know, um, and we can kind of figure out where things are going. Now, I know, you know, you have judges who are appointed and you have judges who are elected, but I would most definitely, most definitely encourage um, our, our brothers and sisters out there in this great nation uh, to, really, to really become um, involved, if we're not already, uh, in that local process. So that perhaps at least in your own city or town, you can help prevent communist judges, socialist judges. Uh, you can prevent leftist judges. You can prevent progressive judges from getting into office. You know, the ones who are not appointed, but the ones who are elected into that position. Um, and, you know, I, I can think about every single ballot that I have ever cast when I look at the judges, you know, and uh, quite frequently, what I've noticed, and I would say anytime I have voted and I have seen uh, judges on the ballot, um, they run unopposed and they are often Democrat. <laughs> now, does Democrat mean that they're going to be evil and unjust? 
it's a good signal and it's not necessarily true, okay? Um, even though we know Democrats have a very specific track record, I do still believe that there is something dangerous about trying to cast a blanket over that entire spoiled political party. But for the most part, yes, we see that uh, Democrat judges uh, tend to be um, lenient, you know, in some instances uh, where they shouldn't, or they just, they're outright uh, just defying common sense and what would appear to be the rule of law, you know? So, uh, yeah, so that, what, what is this, uh, what is this little, uh, this little soapbox you got going on, Mr. C? That's kind of what I'm saying. I'm, I'm kind of building up for our Ghislaine Maxwell story today. Uh, it's a joke. The, the entire trial is a joke, ladies and gentlemen. And from the point of view of a citizen journalist, from the point of view of a concerned American, from the point of view of someone um, who wants nothing more than to ensure that the types of activities that took place with people like Jeffrey Epstein, uh, with people like Prince Andrew, um, you know, the Nygaard guy from Canada. Um, we, can, we can even go all the ways down to uh, that British pedophile. You know, you guys remember who it is, J- Jimmy Seville, right? To make sure that those types of people and those types of activity are completely terminated, obliterated, and put to an end, Right? Uh, from from my point of view, as a concerned citizen, um, I'm I'm sitting back reading. I can't say I'm watching this trial uh, unravel, but I am sitting back reading this trial unravel, um, and I'm looking at uh, the way that it has been progressing to this point. Right now, now originally it was scheduled for six weeks, ladies and gentlemen. That was in the books. Six week trial. Okay. Uh, today, going through the reports, all I'm seeing is they are expecting this trial to end early, um, and also that the uh, prosecution team rested, which we all know this happened last week, right? The prosecution team rested last week, so we're in week three right now. Actually, we're at the end of week three. I just I said at the head we were in week four. We're at the end of week three. Tomorrow will be the last day of week three, but um. Uh, we have uh, we have the prosecutorial team, which has rested their case, of course, right? And uh, we know who is on that team of prosecutors representing New York, right? Representing America. Um, and, and thanks to actually the viewers here um, uh, over at the foxhole.app and uh, pill.net, they were dropping link bombs like crazy yesterday. Now, you guys just about sent me down like all of these rabbit holes. <laughs> a lot of which I was like, man, I don't know how I could include some of these things. Um, but uh, some of y'all dropped very, very important link uh, to, uh, to one of the lead prosecutors for Ghislaine Maxwell's trial. Uh, we already knew about Maureen Comey, right? Uh, but the other one was, uh, Audrey Strauss, um, whom I'm so glad. And I thank you guys again. So I say, you know, like you guys, you know, you guys can fish out some stuff for me sometimes and we can get this on here. And so we're going to talk about that tonight. And after I saw Audrey Strauss, um, her name on there, and then, uh, some of the info that was kind of, uh, given with it, um, it, there was no doubt in my mind that this is going, this is going to be a sham trial, you know, and even the defense said themselves, 
Well, it seems that the prosecu- uh, prosecutor team, uh, prosecutorial team, it seems that they, uh, it seems that they cut their, uh, they cut their, um, they cut their uh, portion of the trial down significantly, which means, can we then assume that there was a lot more that the uh, prosecutorial team, consisting of James Comey's uh, daughter, and consisting of um, the uh, the lead SDNY uh, lawyer, Audrey Strauss, who uh, happens to be the mother-in-law of Melissa DeRosa, who happened to be the secretary of Governor Cuomo, okay, and, you know, and Audrey Strauss... um, uh, kind of uh, doing an overview of her, you know, she she she's made her name by like, uh, oh, I don't know, indicting and charging Steve Bannon. Right. Ultimately, he was um, he was uh, uh, pardoned by President Trump, as we all know. <laughs> and interesting enough, it seems like there's been a little back and forth between Strauss and Trump. Like they have like a kind of history there. But um, after seeing that, I was like, this is a sham trial. So my point being you know, as a concerned citizen, where do we go from here? Where do we go from here when we know we have um, a fixed trial, right? We have a fixed trial. We have a weak prosecutorial team um, who any other day of the week on any other trial would be considered like a dream team of like, you know, important lawyers. Where do we go from here? You know, uh, how do we how do we get this resolved if they pass a um uh, a, a, a not guilty verdict, you know, um, and and I have to ask, ladies and gentlemen, if the prosecutorial team indeed did finish, uh, did rest their case early, what else were they planning to share with the jury? So where this uh, where this trial was expected to run through January, uh, it's now being said that it should be over before Christmas. So I don't know, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I'm not saying, oh, you know, it's the end of the world and uh, give up hope. But that corrupt judiciary, we've got to do something about it. Um, again, the e- I mean, the easiest thing I could say is at your local level, you fight it there. But all of these appointees, like the uh, judge who is overseeing this trial in New York for Ghislaine Maxwell, an Obama appointee, you know. And there were, you know, and there were other things, too, that were going on with this trial, like, you know, a lawyer gets sick, so they take the rest of the day off. Um, They took a day off yesterday from the trial. You see what kind of a joke this is? Um, It's almost as if, though, they are looking at all the people who ever knew anything about Jeffrey Epstein Whoever knew anything about the Lolita Express, whoever knew anything about human trafficking, whoever knew anything about Ghislaine Maxwell um, and and her connections to Epstein and everything else. And they're just laughing at us. They're just laughing at us. They're like, huh. ain't nobody, ain't nobody going to give two licks about this trial, at least in general America. Uh, but for all of us who are initiated to these things, it's it, it. I mean, that can most definitely be frustrating. Am I frustrated? Not necessarily. Um, I have faith that justice will prevail one way or another. But I am very interested to know how this is going to go. Okay. Very interested to know how this is going to go, considering how the uh, 
the uh, decks have been stacked and how the chips are beginning to fall. You know, uh, Ghislaine Maxwell will not be testifying in this trial. And, uh, you know, I don't want to jump the gun on what the verdict is going to be here. I already kind of feel like it is going to be an, uh, a not guilty verdict. Um, but after that, where do we go? You know, um, if you have a, a – will this a dream team of prosecutors who include, uh, you know, a progressive lawyer – well, they're probably all progressive, but, like, also people who are kind of, like, pretty well embedded with, you know, globalist elitist types – um, you know, uh, will they seek an appeal? Like, where will it go from there? You know, where will it go from there? Um, but I, I mean, I, I guess, I guess that will be up to, uh, the jury guys. And, uh, it will also, uh, I guess revolve around the defenses, uh, the defenses case, you know, and we'll have to see if the defense can, um, can muster up enough doubt in the minds of the jury to get that not guilty verdict. Um, but we'll see, because right now the, uh, the uh, defense team, their main, uh, their main objective is to uh, make the witnesses that have testified so far look like they are, uh, you know, they, they are not a reliable or they're not dependable or, you know, you can't, uh, they're questionable, right? And then also, of course, uh, to bring in like a whole slew of um, of uh, of witnesses in Ghislaine's defense. Like uh, the number I had heard last was thirty five. Of course, it's it's not going to be thirty five witnesses defending Ghislaine Maxwell. I guarantee that. But uh, it's going to be quite a number of people. If it is 35, maybe this trial could last six weeks. You know, maybe this trial could last six weeks, but I doubt it somehow. I doubt it. And uh, the entire thing about this prosecutor team, who, I mean, they've basically already folded, right? I mean, I think they folded. I mean, it's it's obvious if you got the daughter of Jim Comey, right? Um, and we all know about the FBI. Their stories breaking right now about the FBI, and, uh, you know, uh, some of the behavior of their agents and uh, some of the ways that they mishandled cases, which causes question, you know, was that indeed mishandling or is this a standard operating procedure at that three letter agency? You know, uh, is the FBI competing with uh, the CIA for human trafficking, you know, um, and that kind of thing? Which reminds me, that was the other, now that I said CIA, that was the other big distraction this week. Uh, and that, I think that broke yesterday. And that distraction was, that distraction was the release of the JFK files, right? Uh, which people are already doubting, questioning, etc. But with, uh, with that, it's so interesting that they did this release on the JFK files yesterday when there was no trial for Ghislaine Maxwell yesterday. They put it on hold so that Judge Nathan Allison, and I'm just sorry, not sorry, Judge Nathan Allison could go to a hearing to see if she would be approved for some brand new position. So let's put this entire trial on hold. Let's put justice on hold. So we can go and see if Judge Nathan Allison, Allison Nathan, okay, Obama-appointed judge, 
if they can, uh, so they can go, uh, you know, uh, boost up her resume or, or perhaps, perhaps, perhaps reward her for the job that she has done. What do you think, ladies and gentlemen? What do you think? So anyways, guys, we will jump into Ghislaine Maxwell and the details uh, in just a bit. Before we get going, uh, let me jump into chat real quick over at uh, pill.net, uh, foxhole.app. We got Relanon in the uh, chat room. Say good evening, Relanon. Good to see those, uh, those big old eyes of yours, my friend. Poonslayer says they will convict her but won't bring out any people involved. That, yeah, that would be a, a fair assumption, I think. I think, and again, that's all hinging on how this defense, uh, you know, sums up their case. Um, and that's the, uh, that is another kind of a slap in the face right there. But, I mean, uh, just to, to cut in real quick to the story later on again, we did have Ghislaine Maxwell's team uh, asking uh, Judge Nathan um, if they could have at least four of their witnesses come in as anonymous. And um, uh, that was denied. So um, at least they won't have that cover of anonymity, whomever they are. And I wonder who they are. Or maybe they won't show up anymore because they're being, uh, they're not going to be allowed to be, uh, to be faceless and nameless, you know. Because uh, that would be rather interesting, I think, if you had some high profile people going in there to defend her. Uh, they probably want to know why and how you're tied to her. And then, you know, people will just dig into those people uh, and kind of fig try and figure out what the connection is here. And if those individuals were connected to Jeffrey Epstein in any way. So maybe those people will back out altogether. You know, maybe they'll back out altogether. Um, but yeah, this is, this is again going to be a miscarriage of justice if, uh, if, if they, I mean, they find her guilty and then what? And then, uh, we never find out anything else about all of the people involved with, uh, um, the human trafficking, um, enterprise that was, uh, being run by these people. Mermaid Miss K, good evening, ma'am. How are you doing today? Good to see you in the audience, sweetie. 123SKG, good evening. Uh, how are you, ma'am? Good to see you. Shanjo, what's up, buddy? We got a cookie in the house. Thank you, sir. I appreciate your donation today. And 123SKG, oh, man, we had some backs-to-backs. 123SKG, -backs. Uh, railing on 117 gold pills and uh, another cookie coming up from Shanjo. Thank you, friend. Thank you, friends. Let me put that, let me put the S on that. <laughs> And uh, appreciate your support, most definitely. Uh, Shanjo says, Mr. C. Splainin. <laughs> uh, getting Dem whiskers trimmed yesterday. Dem whiskers trimmed yesterday. <laughs> I'm not sure if I understand that, but uh, it, it brings a smile to the face either way. Mermaid Miss K says, if the judge was in the deep state's pocket, they wouldn't have to bribe with the promotion. No, nah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Um, she, she, she is an Obama appointee. She is an Obama appointee. And I use the word she loosely, you know, uh, but I, we will see what happens. But I mean, I just thought of that, you know, um, when, after I'd read that, I was like, wow. So they, they, we didn't miss nothing on the Glenn Maxwell trial yesterday, guys, cause they didn't, they were not even in session. Okay. So, uh, not only did the, uh, prosecutor team, uh, take a day off, right? Oh, <laughs> Shanjo, uh, she was getting her beard trimmed, right? <laughs> she was getting her beard trimmed is what was going on yesterday. 
but yeah, I just thought about that. I was like, yeah, the prosecutor team took a day off. You know, they're taking another day off. Like, who who does that, right? Like, like, how do you think the rest of the world would have uh, taken it if, uh, you know, uh, the judge for the uh, Kyle Rittenhouse trial was like, well, uh, I got to go and, uh, you know. And, and then, of course, also in scheduling the entire trial, which is a process, guys. Why would they schedule it during a time when they are going to have this woman who needs to go off to boost her resume, right? Uh, let's see here. Uh, 123SKG says, Mr. C, what do the red letters say on your background picture? Uh, the letters say, may justice be served. <laughs> That's what it says. May justice be served. Uh, that is a good point. That is a good point. Uh, Mermaid Miss K, uh, the judge has said no to 23 asks for the defense. You're right. She, they ha she has. She has uh, said no to uh, Ghislaine getting out on bail several times. She said no to Ghislaine getting moved from that prison several times. Uh, she's, yeah, you're right. The judge has said no, including, like we just mentioned, uh, with, uh, with her denying um, uh, the defense's witnesses to have anonymity. Uh, when testifying. Um, so yeah, I mean, we don't want to, we don't want to give up hope, right? We don't want to throw the baby out with the, uh, the, the dirty Democrat water, right? Judge Amaro, another appointed by Obama judge, uh, down in Georgia, as we talked about the other day, uh, he, he moved the Garland Favorito case forward a lot. I mean, from day one with that trial, I think a lot of us were expecting that Judge Amaro, as an Obama-appointed judge, would have either outright dismissed it or just, you know, what? I mean, he, he approved it, approved it. He allowed them to get the ballots. He allowed them to get the images. Well, not the physical ballots, but to get the images. You know, uh, he moved the case forward until he didn't anymore. Um, and then after that, that, that thing just lingered. It, it languished in, in a lawfare uh, limbo. For months uh, before he just dismissed it altogether, you know. Um, thank you, Mermaid Miss K. Actually, I love that you just said that. And uh, good evening, Sonia JHC. Hey, Mr. C and fam, God bless you all much. Enjoy your dinner, hun. But I, I really appreciate that you said that, Mermaid Miss K. Mermaid Miss K says, we have been programmed to accept defeat. We have to stop doing that. And I love that you said that because that has been on my mind uh, for the last two days specifically. And uh, that was how can I deliver these reports and share these headlines, which obviously, you know, if you're uh, if one is not... Um, I mean, how, how, how can I share these stories in a way that um, there, there, is, there is no defeatist mentality, you know, or there is no sense of hopelessness or there is no, well, it always happens like this. And I think for the most part that I do a fairly good job of sharing news and my stories and views in a way that we're not defeated. We still have that light on, you know, we still have that hope. We still have the ability to beat this. And, you know, in my heart, 100%, 
that is the case. That is the case. Um, but then, you know, you also get those people who are like, I'm a realist, you know, and uh, pragmatically speaking with this historical data, you know, we see that uh, it just always goes this way. And that's that is one. Those are one. That phrase, it always it's it always is like this. No matter what, things don't change. That right there is something I will not I will not uh, subscribe to, you know, but at the same time, um, you know. But you're right, though. God bless you. Thank you so much. Love you much, sweetie. And I'm glad you said that. I'm glad you said that because uh, as an eternal optimist, <laughs> it gets kind of heady when uh, when uh, all of this, uh, you know, all of these things come in and uh, they just swoop at you. You know, they swoop at you. But yes, you know, we we will wait to see. We will wait and see. And that's what it's all about how this trial is going to turn out. And uh, like, I, like I prefer to say here at the Sea Report, may justice be served. May justice be served. Oh, and uh, just real quick, she did, she, did, she did say not accept, but expect. Yeah. Not, yeah, we, we, uh, we tend to accept defeat. We're programmed to expect defeat. We have to beat that, guys. Uh, and we have to do that by, again, for me, it's, it's, uh, it's um, having faith, uh, you know, and uh, also getting the word out. The more that we are involved in that, the more that we share this information, uh, that expands that, uh, that, expands that uh, you know, that uh, repertoire, that artillery that we have ourselves, you know, uh, to, to actually beat this, you know. We have to think positive, you know, and we have to stay positive. Uh, there is no other way to be, you know, there is no other way to be. I've gone off on a whole bunch of different, uh, you know, examples of my own personal histories and, 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 and in, in facing those, those negative dark hallways and, and thinking that way and stuff like that. And I won't get into it because we're doing the report and, uh, you know, maybe that's a conversation we can have another night. Uh, but we have to absolutely maintain that. We cannot give up, guys. Um, we have to maintain that. We have to maintain that. Thank you, Mermaid Miss K, and, and uh, thank you for the can as well. And I'm so glad you were in the audience tonight, ma'am. There's a reason why you were here tonight. So thank you so much for that. But uh, all right, guys, as we're getting into today's report, uh, we have stories brought to you by Law Enforcement Today, The Epoch Times, U.S. News, Reuters, Independent, UK, ABC News, Vanity Fair. Ugh and uh, meaww.com and the New York Post. Now, just keep in mind, guys, today we will be presenting uh, facts that have already been disclosed. Does that mean that uh, things will go, um, you know, opposite to justice? No, uh, but we will still share those stories um, and we will see where that takes us. And uh, of course, ladies and gentlemen, if you are joining us, uh, tonight live, then you are with us um, on uh, one of our multiple live streams uh, that we are broadcasting today. If uh, if and you don't have the chance to catch a live stream, then uh, I do encourage you as always to check us out over at anchor.fm slash the sea report. It's the podcast side of the show. Uh, we upload our broadcasts post show and get them out there for America and the world to listen to. At their leisure, you know, uh, we have the entire back catalog of sea reports available there for you. Uh, interesting enough, um, you know, there are reports uh, from our first episode uh, up to today that are still relevant, you know, even though it's been 
uh, since February that we've been daily on the air, pretty much daily, you know, had a, a little reprieve there whenever I was uh, feeling ill. But, you know, we keep on going, we keep on going. Uh, and also, uh, if you check us out over at thecreport.com, uh, you can also uh, support the podcast there as well, which, of course, supports the show. And um, subscribe for free or subscribe with a donationary, donationary support. <laughs> I don't know if I said that right. Uh, but you can also subscribe for free on your favorite podcast platform. And uh, share those links, ladies and gentlemen. Let everyone know what you think about the show. Uh, because most definitely, uh, word of mouth is more valuable than anything else. Because uh, people who you love, people who love you and uh, know you and trust you, um, they value your opinion uh, more so than anything that they can see uh, coming off of the TV or any advertisement. So that word of mouth, ladies and gentlemen, is more valuable than anything else, ladies and gentlemen. All right, let's go ahead and take a look. Hey, Death Blossom 17 good evening, and you are most welcome, my friend. <laughs> and welcome to the show. Welcome to the show. Good to see you in the audience. Let's get, uh, let's get going with a few President Trump statements. I think we have two statements from President Trump. Now, something tells me, guys, that there is really something coming down the pike in the state of Michigan, okay? We've got two statements from President Trump today uh, regarding the state of Michigan. Uh, we've had two endorsements this past week coming from President Trump out of the state of Michigan. What is boiling in the state of Michigan is kind of what my question is. Uh, and what is coming up? I kind of feel like something's coming up, guys, because we're hearing a lot about Michigan from Trump. But let's see what this statement says. I'm hearing great things about Matt DiPerno from delegates and party leaders in Michigan. He has been all over the great state of Michigan gathering delegate and Republican Party endorsements and commitments. For far too long, the Democrats have taken control of Michigan and pushed radicalism. Enough is enough. Matt is the true America First Agenda candidate and will make a great attorney general. He is a patriot and the fierce fighter Michigan needs to overturn the failed policies of Dana Nassell, that's wretched Dana Nassell, and wretched Gretchen Whitmer. I urge all Michigan delegates and party leaders to support Matthew DiPerno or Matt DiPerno in the April Republican Endorsement Convention. That is a, so this is, this is endorsement number two for Matthew DiPerno from President Donald J. Trump. Okay, the second endorsement, guys, that this man has received from the man. Uh, Matthew DiPerno, um, whom I have stated is one of my heroes. I've, really, guys, um, m my heroes are the ones who are fighting for election integrity. Like, because to me, there is no more important issue than that. I mean, we can talk about uh, ending wars all day. We can talk about the economy and, and dare I say, central banks, because that was my number one issue for years, ladies and gentlemen, was the central banks and the way, uh, aside from who runs them, who owns them, uh, and how they operate, you know, uh, that, that was my number one hook right there. Um, but uh, I would say uh, in this instance... Um, Election integrity is now my number one thing. Uh, just like my favorite president used to be Alexander... Uh, why did I say that? Andrew Jackson. Not Alexander Hamilton. Nope, thank you. 
as my favorite president used to be Andrew Jackson, who killed the bank, at least the second uh, Central Bank of America. Uh, my new favorite president is Donald Trump, who uh, has really put a severe wound in the establishment, globalist elitists. Um, so that's kind of just the way that rolls, you know, like, uh, so- sorry, President Jackson, but indeed, uh, Jackson and the banks, uh, Trump and election integrity, that is the number one issue. So my heroes are the uh, people who are fighting for election integrity. Those are my rock stars. And uh, I have said Matthew DiPerno is uh, one of my heroes. Uh, he's not, these are American heroes, ladies and gentlemen. These are going to be, uh, at least for now, the unsung heroes of uh, the Republic and of freedom. But again, guys, you know, uh, the, to me, that's the biggest issue. It is, the, uh, it is election integrity. That is our freedom. That is literally, literally... Our vote is literally representative of our freedom. Not just representative of me saying, hey, this is who I choose, but representative of me saying, hey, I'm a free moral agent. I have unalienable rights. I have God-given rights that you, the government, did not bestow upon me. Um, But rather, we bestowed upon you the ability to represent us. And we are free moral agents. Uh, We are free to travel, free to move, free to decide, free to everything. And you know... Sometimes that entire idea of freedom just gets very generic and cheesy um, and like, you know, overplayed, cliche, etc. Well, screw that, you know, Uh, just like um, just like uh, the ability for us to have renewed vigor in elections has come about, just like the ability for thousands more of Americans uh, to wake up to what's really going on because, you know, everything is happening so fast. It's so obvious. It's so in the face. It's forcing people to wake up just like that. You know, um, the idea of freedom, if elections can become sexy again or sexy period, freedom can become sexy again. And perhaps, uh, perhaps there will be a great door that opens of understanding, of truly understanding, of getting it. Like, ah, I never thought about that. I've taken for granted that uh, we had freedom because uh, we've never faced any type of encroachment on that freedom for decades, you know, for centuries, right? We fought world wars, but it wasn't over protecting my freedom. Uh, We've gone over and policed the nation. We've gone and spread democracy across the world, but that was not in defense of my freedom, okay? You know, we haven't had someone come here and directly say, we're taking your freedom and uh, we're going to take your country. That has not happened here in America since 1776 and probably the War of 1812 and the Civil War, possibly. If, if you look at the unknown history of all of these wars, which were all funded by the bankers and, uh, you know, even even 1812 was an entire thing with the bankers. Uh, but we're not told that history, okay? So maybe those three wars could qualify for the globalists coming for our freedom, you know? But the war we are fighting right now, ladies and gentlemen, and, you know, when we're talking about staying positive and stuff, I really hesitate to use phrases like that. I don't like to say we are at war. I don't like to say we are fighting. Uh, but, you know, um, to the benefit of, of all the viewers out there who are watching this show, uh, for the, the lingo, the language, you know, the, uh, the, the common vernacular, what we are used to, what we can identify as what we know. I will say that, 
the war that we are fighting right now, okay, the challenge we are facing right now, the challenge that we are facing, I think, uh, with 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 strong with strong uh, opposition, you know, we are we are we are giving them a strong opposition, you know, the challenge that we are facing right now, you know. Um, it is, it, it, it is that, you know, it is that, it is that, it is exactly that. Um, it's here now, it's here now. Um, for all of the patriots in the audience tonight, okay, all of the patriots in the audience tonight, and I know there's a lot of you guys, you know, uh, this show is primarily, patriots are the audience of this show, primarily, like, the highest percentage of my audience is patriots, um, and everyone else out there, they may find the show, they may stumble upon the show, something from this show might resonate with them, right? But um, it might interest them, you know? But um, we understand that uh, when we look back at the history that's gotten us here so far up to this point in time, uh, I know a lot of us out there were like, it's here, this is the moment, you know, like, um, uh, uh, it's real bad, it's, it's finally showing its face, you know, this is, a- we've, we've had moments like that in history, in, in our own personal histories, in observance and in, uh, you know, challenging these globalists who are attempting to take our freedom. You know, we've had those moments, but never has there been a moment like now, ladies and gentlemen, where it is literally that moment, right? Uh, you know, we've heard about their 16-year plan, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's how we can figure out that President Trump, his, his being in office by the grace of God, ladies and gentlemen, by the grace, that was a divine reprieve. That was a divine grace. That was a moment where basically God looked down at America and the world and said, I'm going to give you this chance. We're going to see what you do with it. How are the people, how are my children going to handle this? Okay. You know, and it's, it's almost like one of those times or moments where you kind of think like, you kind of think like, there, he, he wants to see what we're going to do. Is, is America going to wake up and, and again, you know, fight for what God has given us. God helps those who help themselves. You know, I, I believe that hundred percent, you know, luck is not a hundred percent. It's a luck is also preparation, right? Luck is also, you don't just, you don't just, you know, make your own luck, you know, like if you have preparation, man, I mean, you are lining yourself up for that victory, you know? And so that's what we're doing. And that's just kind of how I feel about that. And in this regard, you know, we were given this moment. Okay. So he could assess what we were going to do. Was America going to wake up and fight and become active in their local community and in their government and, and, uh, break away from the chains of, of like slumber and sleepiness and, and, apathy that has been we've been programmed to have right uh expected to be defeated right program like that for decades at least in modern history in this country programmed to expect defeat because it happens every time we are always being it, it never changes right and that's why I, I i refrain from ever subscribing to that mentality because that's what my parents used to say they used to say, oh, but nothing ever changes, you know, and I, you, 
it, it, my dad was retired military, you know, and uh, ultimately he ended up, uh, you know, being part of a religion that was apolitical. And so he just stopped voting. And I'll never forget having conversations with him once I had awoken, once I had awakened to what was going on. And uh, uh, I was like, well, you know what? Let me pick my dad's brain about voting and everything. Because uh, he, was, he was surprised as heck that Trump took the win in 16. You know, um, of course, after that, he would say, well, if I don't see Clinton in chains, nothing ever changes, you know. But I remember asking him his thoughts about voting and stuff like that. You know, nothing ever changes. And I was like, you don't understand. Like, we need to turn out so that if not, at least that there is a record somewhere out there over the rainbow about uh, how many people voted a certain way. Who would have known that enough people would show up to bust their algorithms, right? Who would have known, you know? And that's why I knew. I knew 2020 was in the bag for Trump when I saw the Amish coming down on their chair, on their, their, <laughs> their carriages. Oh. Who does the Amish vote for, right? And uh, you want to talk about a bellwether. <laughs> when you have a parade of Amish carriages coming into town with Trump flags, right? Because uh, they don't use uh, electricity. <laughs> you know, that's when you know the, ha the, you know, the, the win is in the bag, of course. Uh, but we, we, won't, we won't get too much into that because after all, we are where we are at this point. But again... If, uh, if it had not been for this massive, obnoxious, cartoonish fraud that occurred and uh, effectively the insurrection slash coup that happened on November 3, <laughs> we would not see the 25,000 different variants of fraud that they committed in this election. And that is only going to help us assess how to secure our elections further going forward. So in a sense, it's a blessing, okay? In a sense, it is a blessing. And uh, perhaps we should view it that way so we, sh we can take strength in moving forward on that, right? Okay, uh, so that was... Uh, I never even finished talking about Matthew DiPerno. Um, you guys know Matthew DiPerno. Of course, he is the, uh, he's the lawyer that fought for election integrity in Antrim County. Uh, that man has not stopped. That man has not stopped. And um, yeah, well, there you go. Another statement from President Trump in that regard. Let's go ahead and uh, forward to the next statement. And real quick, uh, thank you so much. Hey, WC Cranop is in the house, brother. Get, dare I say it? Uh, just like the speak and easy. And speak and easy. Hey, you're here. Good evening, speak and easy. I was say I'm, I'm, I'm going to say it just like uh, I'm going to say it just like the speak and easy. My brother from another mother. And, and uh, it's good to see you back in the house. Thank you for the donations. <laughs> I'll be back. To, oh, he made a cameo appearance tonight. WC, it is good to see you, sir. As always, glad to have you uh, popping into the chats. We've missed you much in the chats. Uh, and I know, I know the family over at the Foxhole app has as well. For all of you guys listening on the podcast, and you're, who, are, who are these people? One, two, three, SKG, uh, Mermaid Miss K, The Speak Uneasy, Death Blossom, you know, uh, uh, Rail Anon, uh, WC Cranop. Who are these people Mr. C is always talking to? Sean Joe, you know, Poonslayer. Uh, this is the, this is the uh, community of patriots uh, over at um, Pilled.net and Foxhole.app. And I got to tell you how grateful I am uh, because, um, you know, we, we broadcast on multiple stations here, the C-Report, 
and uh, a lot of the family knows these stories, you know? So uh, God bless them for putting up with some, uh, a little redundancy every now and then. But uh, we, we also have to remember that we have a vast audience, uh, a vast untapped audience of general America out there that may not have heard this stuff before, that don't know it, they're new information, you know? Uh, so I'm very grateful that they can kind of sit through some of the redundancy of this information, you know, kind of like I was saying, some of the stories on election integrity we got coming out have been recycled three times over. Finally, it's sticking, uh, but we got to do it, guys. And, uh, you know, I know some of you guys would rather get the booms and the uh, breaking news, uh, but um, I got to maintain that focus on, on getting these stories that keep getting memory hold out there. And then, of course, as we move along in these stories, brand new perspectives come with them. And, uh, you know, uh, brand new insights come with them. And so uh, yeah, that's just that's just the uh, the way we got to go, guys. That is the way we got to go. The Sea Report is 100% listener supported. If you enjoy the broadcasting that we bring to you with the Sea Report and other shows on this podcasting platform, we ask that listeners lend their support. Become a monthly donor when you go to anchor.fm slash the sea report slash support or click on the support button over there at the anchor.fm slash the sea report website where you can help sustain future episodes of the sea report and other broadcasting on this podcast station. Every bit helps, ladies and gentlemen. And as always, I thank you for your support. All right, but thank you for that. Uh, thank you for that cookie donation. One hundred gold pills from Mesquite or Burke, and one two three SKG. Thank you again for the cookie. All right, uh, you be safe out there on the roads, Mister Speak Uneasy, uh, the bartender. And uh, let's see. Always, hey, oh, good evening. Always in Texas. How are you doing tonight? Mm-hmm. Awesomeness. That is beautiful. And, uh, and good to see you all again tonight. And Zena here lurking at Mr. C and fam while cooking and eating. Enjoy that dinner, hun. Enjoy that dinner. All right, let's look at our second statement from President Trump this evening. And uh, this is uh, another, another, this one's an endorsement, but this is another Michigan, a Michigan story here, guys. So let me pull that up on the screen for you. Uh, whenever I go to Michigan, I get the biggest crowds and meet some of the best people. Mike Hoadley is a mayor, father, husband, and an army veteran. Leaders like Mike are stepping forward because they saw the greatest crime in American history, the theft of the 2020 presidential election, and are going to stop the steal and stop election fraud. I wholeheartedly endorse Mike Hoadley for Michigan State Representative. That is awesome. Okay, so this is this is actually a nice endorsement to read, and I'll tell you why. Because it is hard to come by America First representatives in the state of Michigan, like who are already in office. So this Mike Hoadley is apparently a mayor, and now he's going to be running for state rep, right? Yeah, so that's that's awesome. I'm glad to know. Never would have known. Uh, but uh, President Trump is on it, ladies and gentlemen. And apparently we have an America First uh, mayor here 
in uh, in Michigan, uh, which kind of makes me want to do a little bit of a quick jump into who he is, uh, what city he's the mayor of, etc. Come on. There we go. Uh, let's see here. Holy. Okay. First of all, guys, let me, uh, let me assist with a, uh, let me assist with a uh, face to the name. So here is Mr. Hoadley or Mayor Hoadley, I should say, to be respectful. That is the man that just got endorsed by President Trump now running for state representative of Michigan and America first candidate. And uh, it looks like um, who are you the mayor of, Mr. Hoadley? Or maybe he's a former mayor. Let's find out. Um, da -da 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 -da. Well, let's just let's just pull his website up real quick. I like this guy's because this is this is Mike Hoadley. His website vote Mike Hoadley. Check this out. Check this out. This is actually kind of cool. Conservative, it says, it's my name on the ballot, but your voice going to Lansing. All right. We have, uh, we have a, uh, an elected official here who has perspective, right? Who understands. Okay. Now, I know, I know any, anyone running for office can make, uh, you know, rhetoric, rhetorical statements like that. But, uh, but you know, it, it's good to see it particularly when you know it's coming from someone who's received an endorsement from President Trump or who is America first, right? It doesn't always have to be about Trump. You know, I love the man. He's my favorite president at this point. But, uh, you know, Mike Hoadley, born in Flint. Let's see here. Where are you at? Let me, let me see who you the mayor of. Mayor for the city of Ogress. Ogress? From 2020 to present. Okay, cool. So now we know. He is the mayor of Ogress, Michigan. I think I'm saying that right. Very cool. He serves on the Aranac County uh, Soldiers and Sailors Board. He's the chair of the Aranac County Planning Commission. Uh, serves on City Planning Commission and TIFA Board. I was like, Antifa? No, and Tifa? You better be careful, Mr. Sir. They might... <laughs> Uh, yeah, check your phrasing, sir. <laughs> that's funny, though. All right, cool. All right, so that's a little bit about Mike Hoadley. So now we know who the man is. We can put a face to that name. All right. Very good. Very good. So at least we see the number of, uh, the number of America First shock troops, the soldiers, are growing in Michigan, guys. That is good. Wretched Gretchen Whitmer and her current, uh, her current, um, what do you call it? Her current, uh, what is that phrase? <laughs> uh, coven. There we go. I, I kept wanting to say harem, but I was like, I know that's not right. Wretched Gretchen Whitmer and her coven of wretched weird sister, uh, witches, including Dana Nacelle and Jocelyn Benson and and every other, every other uh, treasonous uh, representative or elected official in um, Michigan. Yeah, days are numbered, ladies and gentlemen. All right, let's see what we got next. Uh, the next statement is not a statement at all. Uh, it is a press release from the office of Melania Trump. 
Ooh, what's going on with Melania? Uh, you guys may have heard this story, uh, and maybe not, uh, but let's uh, go ahead and see what's going on with Melania Trump. All right. It's, is there something in the works here, ladies and gentlemen? You know, is there something about the clouds gathering? Like, what is going on? Uh, the uh, Melania, you don't have to say the former first lady, but you know what? She is, uh, at least from my perspective, uh, seems to be a very humble individual. I mean, I've never, never seen anything uh, to, uh, to suggest otherwise. Um, but it says, uh, it says here, uh, the first lady of the United States, sorry, I ain't going to say former, Mrs. Melania Trump to launch a new NFT and blockchain technology venture venture. So now something tells me I'm going to have to uh, get myself to understand and uh, get involved in some of this stuff. Uh, The press release says Palm Beach, Florida, December 16th, 2021. Melania Trump is pleased to announce the Melania Trump non-fungible token platform, which which will release NFTs in regular intervals exclusively on MelaniaTrump.com. The first NFT entitled Melania's Vision will be available to purchase for a limited period between December 16th and December 31st, 2021. Uh, Can someone in the chat room who knows what they're talking about tell me what they're talking about? (laughs) What is a non-fungible token? Uh, And uh, anyway, so I mean, it sounds to me like uh, cryptocurrency, but uh, I did not have enough time before the show to explore that rabbit hole. (laughs) And indeed, that is a rabbit hole that I have not gone down under. Uh, nope, nah, I have not done any of that uh, diversification of currency into uh, cryptocurrencies. But anyways, let's get back to the press release and stop talking about Mr. C's personal life. Uh, the release continues. Mrs. Trump stated, I am proud to announce my new NFT endeavor which embodies my passion for the arts and will support my ongoing commitment to children through my Be Best initiative. Through this new technology-based platform, we will provide children computer science skills, including programming and software development, to thrive after they age out of the foster community. Wow, that is amazing. Okay, so... I don't know if the uh, general audience out there knows or realizes that Melania Trump did a lot of work for child advocacy, um, protection of children, uh, for programs with foster children and and stuff like that. So now she's taking it a step further and she's like, you know what? We're going to take care of you after, after you've left the foster community. Like that is an amazing, uh, that is an amazing thing, guys. Um, It says here, Melania's vision is a breathtaking watercolor art by Marc Antoine Coulon and embodies Mrs. Trump's cobalt blue eyes, providing the collector with an amulet to inspire. The limited edition piece of digital artwork will be one SOL, approximately $150, and includes an audio recording from Mrs. Trump with a message of hope. Mrs. Trump will release NFTs in regular intervals with a one-of-a-kind auction of historical importance scheduled in January 2022, including three elements, digital artwork, physical artwork, and a physical one-of-a-kind accessory. A portion of the proceeds from the Melania Trump NFT collection 
will assist children aging out of the foster care system by way of economic empowerment and with expanded access to resources needed to excel in the fields of computer science and technology. The Melania Trump NFT platform utilizes the Solana blockchain protocol and will accept both the SOL cryptocurrency and credit card payments through MoonPay. Parler is powering the platform. Uh, interesting, guys. Very interesting. Very interesting. <laughs> Skeeter Burke, looks like I'm not alone in that crowd. Uh, Skeeter Burke said, I did not even know what NFT stood for until now. So thanks. I'm right there with you, ma'am. Uh, you know, I I am a student forever. <laughs> and Lord knows, the older I get, the more there is to learn, it seems. <laughs> Let me see what you guys got on here going on real quick. Uh, we love your work, C. We'll donate. Thank you, Death Blossom 17 I appreciate you. Uh, WC Cramp is uh, speaking with always. It's good, it's good to see you back in the audience, WC. And uh, let's see here. <laughs> sorry sorry okay cool <laughs> i was just i was just checking uh to see if any of you guys had uh skeeterberg did drop a link in there though i'm guessing about the, these nfts right <clears throat> I'll, I'll dig a little bit more into that oh yeah it says right here thank you miss skeeterberg uh says uh what is a non-fungible token non-fungible tokens or nfts are cryptographic assets on a blockchain with unique identification codes and metadata that distinguish them from each other. Unlike cryptocurrencies, they cannot be traded or exchanged at equivalency. This differs from fungible tokens like cryptocurrencies, which are identical to each other and therefore can be used as a medium for commercial transactions. Hmm. So I don't know. Uh, I don't know if this is an accurate um, comparison, but I, I would, it, to me, that kind of sounds like uh, your cryptocurrency is like your, your regular currency, right? And your NFT might be like bullion or something. I don't know if that's an, I don't know anything about this stuff, guys. I'm pretty sure the podcast audience is laughing at me right now. Okay, <laughs> so... <laughs> What you need to know, NFTs are unique cryptographic tokens that exist on a blockchain and cannot be replicated, so they're one of a kind. NFTs can be used to represent real-world items like artwork and real estate. Okay, so that's a different diversification in your, uh, in your portfolio, I guess you can say. So I guess an NFT would be like, if you're looking at your net worth, it would be like your house or your, your, your extremely expensive piece of artwork or your jewelry or something like that, is what that kind of sounds. So I guess that would be a, more, uh, a, better, com a better comparison as opposed to bullion or something like that. Uh, tokenizing these real-world tangible assets allows them to be bought, sold, and traded, but not traded like currency as a, a commodity of exchange. You can't be like, uh, I'll exchange uh, this, uh, this expensive piece of artwork or this house for like, you know, a basket full of groceries. Eh, you know, it's not, it would not be a commonly exchanged thing. NFTs can also be used to represent individuals, identities, property rights, and more. Okay. So it's basically uh, your digital 
portfolio asset. Uh, the distinction, the distinct construction of each NFT has the potential for several use cases. For example, they are an ideal vehicle to digitally represent physical assets like real estate and artwork because they are based on blockchains. NFTs can also be used to remove intermediaries and connect artists with audiences or for identity management. NFTs can remove interme intermediaries, simplify transactions and create new markets. Okay, so I think that's kind of a better... <laughs> I, I'm so bad. Look at here. Uh, thank you again, Skeeter Burke, for, for sharing that. And uh, this is from Investopedia. Okay, so that's what I'm reading. I should have put that on the screen. Okay, this is actually the last paragraph I'm going to read here. I was about to stop, but then it looks like we got an even better breakdown. Understanding NFTs. Okay. Oh, so we're learning something. This was not expected to be on the report tonight, but hey, Thank you for fleshing that out for me, guys. Like physical money, cryptocurrencies are fungible. In example, they can be traded or exchanged one for another. For example, one Bitcoin is always equal in value to another Bitcoin. Similarly, a single unit of Ether. Oh, God, you're not speaking. <laughs> Why did you have to throw in something there? I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, a single unit of Ether is always equal to another unit. This fungibility characteristic makes cryptocurrencies suitable for use as a secure medium of transaction in the digital economy. Um, NFTs shift the crypto paradigm by making each token unique and irreplaceable, thereby making it impossible for one non-fungible token to be equal to another, kind of like one house's value would not be identical to the value of another house. They are digital representations of assets and have been likened to digital passports because each token contains a unique, non-transferable identity to distinguish it from other tokens. They are also extensible, meaning you can combine one NFT with another to breed a third unique NFT. Okay. Um, all right. I think I can, I think that's, I think I am satisfied, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. I think I am satisfied in this. Uh, I just got a new wrinkle in my brain, guys. Haha, -ha, it's not so smooth after all, huh? <laughs> Awesomeness. Awesomeness, guys. <laughs> Why do we get here? How do we get here? Why are we back at the C report screen? All right, let's uh, move it on, guys. This is where we left off. <clears throat> talking about uh, Melania Trump and her new venture. All right, guys, so that's just a little bit of information. We're finally getting the boss lady back in the news, right? About time, Miss Boss Lady. We missed you. We missed you very much. Okay, let's take a look at um, uh, our next story. Uh, I only got uh, two stories for you guys before we jump into Ghislaine Maxwell. And man, I already said enough about her, so uh, we're just going to give you the details on uh, today's trial, since uh, they were not in session yesterday. Uh, but let's take a look at this. Who is this man? This is a libertarian journalist, uh, John Stossel, and uh, he has sued Facebook for defamation. Uh, so this is a story uh, that a lot of us have probably heard about. Now, if you have not heard about this story, well... Why don't you sit back a few and take a gander at this headline? Report. Facebook admits in court filings its fact checks are merely opinion. Dun, dun, dun. And now 
Everything is in question. Do you see why deep statists, elitists, globalists, leftists, progressives, all of these people don't like to go to trial? They would rather suicide someone before they go to trial. They would rather, they would rather, um, they would rather, uh, what do you call it? They would rather settle with someone before you go to trial, right? Because once you go to trial and you get deposed and there's a, you know, there's a bit of discovery going on, you have to submit facts to the court. And that is what they don't want. They would rather settle. They would rather kill you than go to trial. So now, based on this headline, what I would say is uh, Mark Zuckerberg in the court of law has had to admit that fact checks are opinion. Well, ladies and gentlemen of the jury and the audience, uh, most of my audience already knew that. <laughs> but for those of you who didn't, well, allow us to enlighten you. Let's see what this uh, article has to say. <laughs> you guys, can y'all even read that? There we go. Report. Facebook admits in court filings, its fact checks are merely opinion. It's not going to stop them from, uh, you know, banning you or removing your posts. But, uh, well, let's see where this goes. Um, let's see here. Oh, check this out. Uh, this is from uh, Law Enforcement Today. The following contains some editorial content, which is the opinion of the author. Ah, that's fine. We'll take it. We are probably of the same opinion. Uh, so uh, to the general America audience out there, the following content uh, in this uh, article um, may, uh, may contain opinions, which most of my audience agrees with. <laughs> it says, if you're a conservative or run conservative site, you have likely been hit by one of the infamous fact checks from Facebook. By definition, a fact check means to investigate an issue in order to verify the facts. Short, sweet, and to the point, investigate to verify the facts. Investigative journalist John Stossel, formerly of ABC News, brought a lawsuit against, e uh, against the tech giant Facebook, and in defending their case, Facebook actually admitted that the so-called fact checks used by the company are not actually fact checks, but are merely opinion. According to the New York Post, the lawsuit stemmed from two videos posted by Stossel that discussed climate change, which the Post referred to as the third rail of liberal politics. The videos did not question the existence of climate change, which has been, despite liberal politicians' protestations, subject to some debate. Okay, and uh, we'll skip through this. It says, rather, the videos examined other issues involving forest management and the use of technology to adapt to what the left refers to as climate change. However, in the case of the two videos, a third-party fact-checker employed by Facebook Science feedback flagged the videos as false or the old fallback lacking context. In claiming the video lacked context, the third party said they didn't like the tone of Stossel's commentary. <laughs> tone? How in the world does one quantify tone, right? As the post notes, you can't write anything about climate change unless you say it's the worst disaster in the history of humanity, which will cost trillions of dollars to fix. So clearly, this is the editorial content. 
that uh, they mentioned at the head of this. They, they weren't talking about the fact-checking and the banning. They were talking about what this author had to say in regards to uh, climate change and how if you are a Republican or a conservative, it is all your fault and uh, how uh, natural disasters occur because of climate change, right? Okay, all right. Uh, we all laugh at that, generally speaking, here at the Sea Report. As has happened to many conservatives, or in the case of Stossel libertarians, Facebook throttled Stossel's content, which in turn cost him readers and, more importantly, revenue. Law enforcement today has also fallen victim to these draconian fact-checkers. And here's, I don't know what this is. What does that say? I don't know what that is. Okay. All right. It goes on. So Stossel rightfully filed suit against Facebook for defamation. In its defense, as noted in a court filing, Facebook actually put it in writing that their fact checks are in fact opinion. As reported in Breitbart and their filing reads, with emphasis from Breitbart, uh, beyond this threshold, section 230 problem, Beyond this threshold, Section 230 problem, the complaint also fails to state a claim for defamation. For one, Stossel fails to plead facts, establishing that Meta acted with actual malice, that Facebook acted with actual malice, which is a public figure, which as a public figure, he must. For another, Stossel's claims, um, claims focus on the fact-check articles written by Climate Feedback, not the labels affixed through the Facebook platform. The labels themselves are neither false nor defamatory. To the contrary, they constitute protected opinion. So what does that tell us, dear audience, about provisions of section 230 that we did not realize or were not aware of aside from granting facebook total immunity as a publisher since they censor their content has section 230 inadvertently created a loophole where they can protect their opinion to back up their editing and protect them further. Isn't that crazy? That's kind of like the politician leaking the information to the journalist and then the journalist putting that out there in the media cycle and then the politician saying that we have articles from this journalist in the news cycle that was leaked to them, but we don't know it was leaked to them. But you get it, right? That cycle. It's, it's a, wow. Okay, so, uh, politician leaks story, then uses the, the news cycle as proof of why they have the stance of where they are. Think about the Trump impeachments. Think about Schiff. Think about wrap-up smear campaigns. So Facebook gets protection, creates an opinion, and then uses that opinion to fact-check and censor. It's protected. What a vicious cycle. Yeah, it's, uh, man, these people, ladies and gentlemen, what a way to look at it, right? Okay, let's finish up here. It says, and even if Stossel, and this is also from uh, Facebook, Facebook meta uh, Zuckerberg testimony, the last sentence says, and even if Stossel could attribute climate feedback separate webpage to meta Facebook, the challenged statement on those pages are likewise neither false nor defamatory. Any of these failures would doom Stossel's complaint, but the combination makes any amendment futile. 
So you see what Facebook Meta does here. They're trying to pin the wrap, so to speak, on climate feedback since Facebook outsources their censorship to third-party fact-checkers, most of which consist of liberal news outlets and nonprofits. Clearly, Facebook does this in a deliberate attempt to distance itself from being responsible for fact-checkers by claiming those decisions are not Facebook's, but the third-party company. As Breitbart notes, however, Facebook is acting upon those decisions by affixing labels to posts that have been fact-checked, thus throttling their reach on the social media outlet. What Facebook is attempting to do is claim that since their fact checks are opinion, they are protected speech under the First Amendment. Oh, now they're going to use 230 and A1. What the heck? The Post noted they also have been victimized by fake book fact checkers, noting that a February 2020 article was posted to their web page, uh, to their page rel- relative to whether or not the COVID-19 virus was leaked from the Wuhan Research Lab. That article was given a false label by Facebook fact checkers, despite the fact that little was known at the time about the origins of the virus. According to the post, among those relied on for the fact check was a group of so-called independent scientific reviewers who relied on, among others, EcoHealth, which had funded gain-of-function research at the Wuhan lab as part of their panel of experts. Clearly, this is another editorial content moment here. <laughs> uh, because <laughs> I like this. Uh, I like this rag. Law enforcement today, huh? Oh, these guys are clearly on our side of the line. Uh, clearly, this is another opinion of the author, right? Because I guess they could get in trouble for, uh, for saying that uh, Wuhan, in spite of all of the facts and receipts that we have reviewed here at the Sea Report and everyone else out there who has their hands on these receipts and who know, who can trace back EcoHealth and who can trace back uh, the funding that went from there, from, from, uh, from being released by Fauci to Eco and going abroad, like, we have all of the receipts, But I guess, you know, they're playing it safe here. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Law enforcement today, it is okay. Thank you for putting that out there. Um, Let's let's finish up here. Okay, that kind of just took me aback for a moment, but uh, (laughs) that is so interesting. Uh, What an article. What an article. Okay, let's finish up with the post here. Uh, as part of the panel. Okay. So it says uh, separately, Twitter also engaged in similar censorship of the post uh, shortly before the 2020 presidential election, when that company blocked the post stories about Hunter Biden's laptop, which has since been verified as belonging to him. Twitter's claim, question mark, they said it was based on hacked materials, which was a materially false claim. The action was clearly taken to give Joe Biden cover and protect his presidential campaign. That's the New York Post. In both the above cases, the New York Post said the so-called fact checks were eventually lifted. However, the damage was done and it no longer mattered. Perhaps that was the intent all along. Uh, the, the New York Post notes a familiar name is involved in the ga- uh, fact-checking game, namely one George Soros. Along with a number of government-funded nonprofits, far-left media, and the tech tyrants themselves. For Stossel, he noted in an op-ed 
uh, in the New York Post that as a private company, Facebook can censor whomever it wants, but noted that what Facebook is doing is just sleazy and obvious. Stossel said the Facebook on their own pages portrays fact checks as statements of fact. He notes that is how uh, Facebook defines them on its website as follows. Each time, each time a fact checker rates a piece of content as false, Facebook significantly reduces the content's distribution. We apply a warning label, whoops, uh, to the fact checker's article disproving the claim. Okay. So perhaps Facebook or Meta is now going to do what uh, Twitter did with the New York Post. And uh, they're going to lift their fact checks. But hey, the damage has been done. Uh, So here Stossel notes, Facebook uses the term disproving the claim. Opinion? Sounds like a statement of fact to Stossel, as well as to anyone else reading that statement. Facebook is claiming protection under Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. What What a contradiction in terms which is designed to protect the company from liability for material uh, posted on the website by third parties. On behalf, whoops, on behalf, uh, where do we go? Oh yeah, Uh, Cute Dance Facebook is trying to do, oh, where are you at? Hold on. Oh, pardon me, I misread the sentence. Cute Dance Facebook is trying to do here. They employ third-party fact checkers to act on their behalf, yet deny any liability when those fact checks uh, commit libel or defamation, as Stossel is alleging. Stossel, however, uh, argues that it was Facebook, not just a third party, that declared my post partly false. Facebook's warning was created by Facebook and posted in Facebook's voice. Stossel also noted that Facebook admits uh, on its own website that we apply a warning label. He noted that he brought the defamation perpetrated by Facebook to their attention over a year ago. However, they did nothing to correct it. The suit stems from a video Stossel put up, which claims that wildfires in the state of California were more caused by poor government management of the forests rather than climate change, which Facebook called misleading, citing the science feedback post, which incorrectly quoted Stossel as saying forest fires are caused by poor management, not by climate change, except Stossel claims he never said that. In fact, Stossel said he acknowledged that climate change has made things worse. Okay. All he did was note, in his opinion, government mismanagement was a bigger factor, noting that while a lot of forests were affected by so-called climate change, well-managed forests fared much better. Okay, I think we can uh, we can stop there. Uh, the main point, of course, in this was that uh, Facebook, in the court of law, under penalty of perjury, admitted that uh, their fact checks are nothing more than glorified and protected opinions. All right, ladies and gentlemen, well, at least we get that factoid out into the open. Would anyone like to fact check, ladies and gentlemen? All right, last story before we get to Ghislaine Maxwell, ladies and gentlemen. Whoopsies. Uh, We have an election... 2020 election uh, story. This one coming out of the Epoch Times. Okay. 
And uh, this one says, uh, post-2020 election sees barrage of election bills limiting or expanding mail-in voting. So basically, this, uh, this article here is going to be an overview of how states are acting or enacting or not acting uh, on what happened in 2020. Um, we've been, we've been talking to, uh, election integrity and 2020 fraud here the last few days specifically, um, real quick, uh, to close the circle on yesterday's story with the Pennsylvania hearing, uh, today they finally published some articles about where that hearing was going. Quick recap, uh, the hearing yesterday, uh, the judges, uh, were on a panel, um, trying to decide if they would quash, uh, um, the, 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 Pennsylvania Senate's uh, subpoenas uh, requesting 9 million uh, cases of information about voter data. And uh, no one would talk about what the judges uh, decided. But finally, I found some articles. And uh, basically, the way that hearing ended is uh, the judges are going to uh, give a ruling in January of next year. And uh, they will then decide whether or not they are going to go ahead and move forward with that summary judgment to quash the subpoenas or if they are going to require another hearing with more testimony. So that's where that is going just to close that circle, guys, because I was like, not one article told me what the judges ruled. And I I was not able to finish watching the hearing. But anyways, okay, so that closes that circle. Now we can move forward with this uh, with this uh, story here. Let's see what the states are doing, how they're doing, who's doing what, who's doing when and how. It says, uh, did I, did I take that? Whoops, wrong one. Okay. Let me, uh, there we go. All right. So it says here, uh, some states expand use of mail-in ballots while others are limiting their use over security concerns. Of course, this is a great way to measure our states individually, respectfully. Um, so we can see how our states are doing. Let's see if your states are mentioned in here. Probably they will be. It says, after the unprecedented expansion of mail-in voting in the 2020 election, dozens of states changed their mail-in voting rules. Republican-leaning states tended to introduce measures to make voting more secure but less convenient, and Democrat-leaning states were uh, more likely on the opposite track. At least 36 states passed bills pertaining in some way to mail-in voting, according to the left-leaning Voting Rights Lab. Much of the change pertained to issues arising out of the 2020 election, where many states relaxed rules on absentee voting using the COVID-19 pandemic as justification, um, while many Democrats portrayed those changes as not only necessary but worth preserving for good. Republicans were more likely to see them as harmful one-off excesses that undermined election integrity and of course, ladies and gentlemen, this is this is exactly the back and forth fight that we have been seeing. And, uh, you know, depending on what type of news you're listening to or what news outlet you're listening to, uh, you will understand that as a fact um, on either side of the story. Uh, Let's see. No request, no ballot. Uh, This is another issue. So some state officials last year decided to send mail-in ballots to all registered voters, even though local election laws required voters to request such ballots First, right, that was an unconstitutional move by many states, not just at the uh, at the national level, that is unconstitutional, but at the state level, unconstitutional. Many, not not all states. Don't get me wrong. I know there's a, a couple of those uh, those states out there, like Colorado, for example, where they they automatically mail out all ma- ma- mail out ballots to anyone who's registered. 
but for the first time ever, uh, this constitutional uh, law was violated um, and uh, there, there was no, no voting legislature, no law written in that regard to that. Um, and instead, they used the emergency powers of the COVID-19 system to go ahead and think that they could overrule their own state constitution, even in some cases, their own city charter. Uh, so here's an infographic here, change in mail-in voting rules. So if you see the red states, these are states that tightened rules for and or scaled back mail-in voting. Yeah, Washington, Idaho, Montana, North Dakota, Arizona, Nebraska, Texas, uh, Arkansas, Iowa, Illinois, uh, Indiana, sorry, obviously not Illinois, Kentucky, Georgia, Florida, and New Hampshire. Uh, the states in green expanded or relaxed their rules for mail-in voting. And we have obviously uh, an obvious cast of characters here, California, Nevada, Oregon. Isn't that funny? We have a Republican SOS here in Nevada, and yet somehow they end up relaxing the laws. All right. That's why uh, Jim Marchant needs in. And that's why uh, uh, Barbara Savetsky needs to go. Uh, Wisconsin, uh, Illinois, New York, Virginia, Maryland, uh, so, yeah, Rhode, uh, New Jersey, <laughs> Connecticut, uh, I'm sure Rhode Island's in there somewhere, Massachusetts, Vermont, and Maine, okay? And uh, let's see, uh, states who are, oh, there, there's Delaware, states uh, who are blank, who are white, uh, they had no change to their rules, and then states in gray, uh, state changed mail-in voting rules in a way that is not clearly more or less strict. Okay, and Alaska is also a white one. Okay, so we'll move on. Uh, states including Arkansas, Arizona, Florida, all we just saw, uh, expressly banned their election officials from sending out mail-in ballots or sometimes even mail-in ballot applications to voters who have not requested them. North Dakota passed the ban too, but added an exception for jurisdictions that conduct elections primarily by mail. In addition, states including Kansas, Kentucky, and Texas banned officials from changing their own election rules set by law. <laughs> That's right. You cannot, uh, like, the, like the Wisconsin Election Commission, who took it upon themselves to decide that uh, they could make ballot harvesting legal if you were in a nursing home or a rehabilitation center, and especially if you were mentally incapacitated or dying. Uh, obviously, we need to harvest your ballot, right, Wisconsin Election Commission? You don't have enough stripes. Ha! You do not have authorization to make such changes. All right? That is state law. That must be legislated. Um, California, Vermont, Skeeter Burke. Exactly. When it comes to the Secretary of State, or snakes, she is a rhino, guys. Jim Marchant. Jim Marchant, he is our Secretary of State's coalition leader. He is our America First candidate. He needs to get into Nevada, all right? All right, let's go on with this article. California, Vermont, and Nevada did just the opposite, stipulating by law that ballots will be mailed to all registered voters before every election. Nevada, all right? Yeah, we are, we are pulling for Jim Marchant here at the C-Report. While universal vote-by-mail schemes make voting more convenient, conservatives have criticized them for opening doors to fraud. Voter rolls are notoriously inaccurate, often including people who've moved out of state or passed away. Ballots delivered to wrong addresses would, could potentially be seized on by cheaters, some Republicans warned, which is why we are seeing the need for more canvassing and the call for canvassing in post-election. 
Uh, in the 2020 election, more than 1.1 million mailed ballots bounced as undeliverable, according to the Public Interest Legal Foundation. Yeah, those are more. Those are more heroes. An election integrity watchdog. Another nearly 15 million mailed ballots were not voted or otherwise returned. Signature matching. We saw this scandal happening in um, Michigan. Uh, one, well, actually, we've seen it all throughout, just uh, more obvious and blatant in some states than others. One security measure to prevent cheating is a signature on the ballot envelope that needs to match the one officials have on record. However, many, some states changed their signature matching rules this year. In a bill passed in September, California lawmakers made it more difficult to disqualify a ballot for signature mismatch. If an elections official determines that the signature possesses multiple significant and obvious differing characteristics when compared to all the signatures in the voter's registration record, then two more election officials must review the signature. Each of those officials must find beyond a reasonable doubt that the signature differs in, um, in multiple significant and obvious respects when compared to all the signatures in the voter's registration record. Only then would officials set aside the ballot and try to contact the voter with an opportunity to cure the issue. Previously, the law had a ballot set aside right after an election official found a signature mismatch. That's right. It was set aside and it was put into adjudication. Uh, California voters now have up to 28 days. 28 days. That is election day plus 28 to cure a ballot depending on when local officials need to pass on the official results to the state. So I would like to, just like in New Jersey where they shut down their voting machines and warehouse them for two weeks and then go back and get their results uh, with authorization from a judge. Um, do you think that, uh, do you think that once they, uh, they assess once they assess who the winner of that uh, of that election is, once they have their trajectory, right? Do you think they're really going to go back 28 days later and change it? Doubtful. The media who's going to cover for them will tell everyone their winner. And then 28 days later, they'll just say, yeah, we confirmed that was the winner. Right? God, that is insane, guys. That is insane. What is going on in this country? Uh, in Colorado, which conducts universal vote-by-mail elections, ballot observers are now explicitly not allowed to challenge a ballot based on a signature mismatch. Secretary of State Jenna Griswold, we need to get that woman out. We need to get that woman out. That is insane. That is insane. The, the, uh, the issue can only be addressed by election officials during the regular signature verification process. That is insane, guys. So ballot, uh, ballot observers have lost uh, their ability to assist in securing our elections in the state of Colorado. That is insane. You, you might as well just lock them out and cover the windows with pizza boards. In Colorado. Heck, why even have uh, uh, ballot observers or anything like that? In California, ballot observers can still challenge ballot signatures during the signature comparison process, but can no longer challenge ballots based on address verification. Because Lord knows we don't want a primary up there in Cal, I mean, a, a canvas up there in California. 
That's interesting too, guys. That's interesting too because the only the only reported major case of uh, election fraud that came out of California came out of uh, University of Santa Barbara where they had uh, apparently every apparently college was in session, right? During this pandemic, right? Right in the heat of the pandemic. And all the dormitories were full and every student voted, but the college was closed. The dormitories were closed. But with that rule, they cannot go canvas. Rachel Ham is running for Secretary of State in California. She's America first candidate. And I would highly recommend that if Rachel Ham wants to get any huge traction in California, that she goes after University of Santa Barbara, that thing, that thing got, got, got put into, uh, into limbo. That case got put into limbo and nobody wants to claim jurisdiction over that case. They send it over to the, 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 the Santa Barbara Police Department and they say, nope, that goes to the UC Berkeley Police Department. They say, nope, that goes to the state DA and it's just been going in circles. No one's claiming uh, jurisdiction over that case. Crazy, isn't it? In Florida, on the other hand, political parties and candidates now have pre-canvas access to ballot certificates and reference signatures, which makes it easier for them to challenge ballots. Texas now explicitly allows watchers to observe the signature verification process. Previously, the law authorized watchers at early voting board meetings, but did not specifically allow them at signature verification meetings. Idaho and Kansas, which previously lacked a statute explicitly requiring signature matching for mail-in ballots, instituted the the rule this year. Uh, Indiana used to have no option for a voter to cure a signature issue. If a county election board did not unanimously approve the signature, the ballot was rejected. In 2020, a court ordered the Secretary of State to put in place a curing procedure, which has been this year codified by legislature. Now, if officials find a signature defect, the ballot is deemed provisional. The board must notify the uh, voter by mail and, if available, email and phone within two business days. The voter has until noon on the eighth day after the election to cure the ballot through a signed affidavit returned by mail, fax, email, or in person. And I got to say, guys, I I kind of agree with a lot of these things. But what I'm looking at is the, the time frame, okay? The time frame is what's concerning me here, right? And, uh... So in Indiana, for example, it's good. I think that is actually really good. The voter actually needs to be contacted instead of the uh, instead of the uh, imperfect biased human trying to compare signatures and decide whether or not to accept it or decline it. You know, um, they actually have to contact them. Now, the holdup here is that uh, that could take forever. So props to Indiana for doing that. But now we're looking at a 10-day wait from election day plus. So two business days to contact and up to eight days or, oh, on the eighth day. Okay, so eight days. So it's uh, election day plus eight, right? So, but to me, that's still too much of a time gap. Now, as was, uh, as was expressed during the Pima County 2020 election hearing, they were like, we can get this done in two days, guys. But what we need is for everyone to be involved, to get to get uh, to get a gymnasium full of 
volunteers, patriotic Americans, you know, who will go and help with that. So this way they can get it wrapped up within 24 hours, um, within 48, I think, you know, I, I kind of agree with the two day election holiday, um, which would give concerned Americans or people who love their country the ability to go out and participate and everyone else who doesn't care, hey, you're probably, uh, you're probably a left leaner anyways. You probably don't like your country anyways. So uh, you need to go vote. But if you don't, well, we will go vote and we will go assist with our elections and make sure this gets done quick. And that's what I'm kind of saying. So the time frame here is kind of like, to me, like, whew, it's still, it's still a large amount of times. It's not a two-week process like New Jersey has, and it's not a 28-day process that California now has, but it's still, it's still some time for them to try and do something untoward. Mail-in deadlines. The deadline for returning mail-in ballots has been an infection, an inflection point too. Some states require ballots to arrive by election day. Some allow ballots to arrive later as long as they are postmarked on or before election day. Um, several states have gone even further this year. Uh, in California, ballots mailed uh, based on voter affidavit or on or before election day would not would now still count if received within seven days after the election, even if they're missing postmark with a date. It's crazy. Craziness. Oregon, which runs universal vote by mail elections, now accepts ballots returned by mail without a postmark within seven days after election day. That's crazy. Oh, I don't got to worry about voting on election day. I got at least a week. That is insane. In Nevada, ballots without postmarks will also be accepted if they are received by noon on the third day after the election. You know, I can't, I cannot pass this off all on the Secretary of State of Nevada, although I would love to. It's also their legislature. <laughs> That's insane. Uh, Kansas, on the other hand, created a new felony for knowingly backdating or otherwise altering a postmark of a mail-in ballot, except if authorized by federal law, the state also nixes the Secretary of State's power to extend the mail-in ballot return deadline. Good for you, Kansas. And I'm sure you guys all remember that story that came out of Project Veritas, where we they, they had a whistleblower that busted the postmaster supervisor for backdating. Yeah, it's true. It happens. Voter fraud and election fraud is real, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, let's see here. Let's go. We're, we're running a little long. Okay. So ID for mail-in. Uh, some of the toughest mail-in voting measures have been introduced in Georgia this year. Um, when applying for a mail-in ballot, Georgians need to provide an identification number from an ID issued by the state. If they do not have one, they can attach a photocopy of a different ID. Voters also need to put a state-issued ID number or the last four digits of their social security number on the absentee ballot, um, outer return envelope in a place that's not visible when it's sealed. Uh, voters without any uh, such number need to include a copy of an alternative ID with the ballot. Previously, voters only needed to include a signed oath affirming their identity. Florida now also requires voters to include their Florida driver's license number, another ID number, or the last four digits of their social security number. When requesting a mail-in ballot, the ballot applications now only count for one round of general elections instead of two. Texas put in place a similar requirement this year for both requesting and returning mail-in ballots. The law still allows, however, for voters to attest they neither have ID nor social security number and still request and return the ballot. 
And might I add, um, when I go vote, I still have not been asked for ID in person. And they give us pencils. And I always take my pen and I use my pen. But it's Heart Intercivic Machines, which is a Dominion subsidiary. So uh, probably makes no difference. Other issues. Another uh, number of Republican-leaning states to include Florida, Georgia, Kansas, and North Dakota have also banned election officials from accepting private funding for running elections. Wow. I didn't even know that was happening. Uh, the statues are apparently a response to the... Oh, I get... Duh, I knew that was happening. Hello, Mr. C. We've been talking about uh, the Center for Tech and Civic Life and uh, Zuckerbucks for how long? Since uh, April? <laughs> Anyways, okay, I didn't understand the sentence, okay? The statutes are apparently a response to the $400 million Facebook uh, head Mark Zuckerberg poured into local elections um, offices last year. A PILF, P-I-L-F, uh, Public Interest Legal um, um, Fund, or Foundation, uh, report concluded the money dispro- disproportionately favored Democrat-leaning areas. Um, Other areas where Democrat and Republican-leaning states have moved in opposite directions include the use of ballot drop boxes. Uh, GOP-led legislatures seem to prefer fewer boxes uh, indoors and under constant supervision. Uh, Democrat-led legislatures seemed more willing to allow however many boxes local officials want, um, even outdoor or mobile ones. Okay. Let me see how much we're... Oh, we're at the end of it, guys. Uh, Let's see here. Uh, states including Illinois, Maryland, and Virginia codified this year permanent absentee voter lists. People on the list are to be sent mail-in ballots automatically before every election. Arizona, on the other hand, made it easier to remove voters from its already existing permanent absentee voter list. And Democrat-led bills weren't completely bereft of new restrictions. California, for instance, banned ballot collection boxes that look like they are official ones. Huh? Huh? The state's GOP last year set up its own ballot boxes, oh, I see, saying it was to demonstrate the inordinate permissiveness of California's election rules. Democrats were not amused and accused the GOP of breaking the law. Not just California, but several other states this year banned ballot boxes that may give the impression they were set up by the government. Okay. Interesting article, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks again for joining us here tonight at the Sea Report. Hope you guys have enjoyed the show so far and uh, everything we've been talking about. Um, Let's see here. And uh, what do we got going on? What do we got going on? All right. Mike Myers, good evening. Oh, man, that was a bit ago. I apologize that you said hello. And uh, WC dropping some more gold pills. Hey, there were no swamp, swamp creatures on screen tonight, but man, you should have been with us the other night. All right, uh, let's get to the main event. What is this? Where's my picture? Oh, I didn't get one. I thought I, I, thought I procured a photo. Here's your swamp creature. <laughs> I thought I had procured an image of Ghislaine Maxwell. I actually got a couple of other swamp creatures. They're coming now, guys. They're coming now. Uh, this one, okay, so we kind of already did a recap in brief at the head of the show of what's going on here. So, again, they took the day off yesterday so that, uh, Judge Nathan Allison could go get, uh, her rewards. And, um, uh, they reconvened session today. Uh, so where are we at? At the close of last week, we had, um, the defense resting their case. I mean, the prosecutors resting their case. 
Okay, and uh, we had um, four victims and uh, slash accusers, right, um, testify. We had uh, two pilots and a boyfriend of one of the victims testify. Mm, and that was it, basically. Prosecute The prosecutorial team consisting of James Comey's daughter and uh, the mother-in-law of uh, Nipple Rings Cuomo's former secretary on the prosecutorial team as the lead prosecutors. Okay, I'll just throw that out there one more time, just so that uh, we have that information handy, right? Regardless of where this case goes, this trial goes, at least we have that information handy. Now, uh, Ghislaine Maxwell's lawyers, as I stated earlier, they're going to focus on um, uh, focus their defense on memory manipulation and money. So, just basically making uh, plausible, I mean, uh, questionable questionability to the witnesses. You know, challenging the witnesses and uh, and whether or not they're credible, right? Okay, so we'll we'll we will not speed read these, but we will skim them a little bit since I pretty much gave you guys a lot of the detail. I won't do a full read like I did of that previous article. Um, let's see here. Ghislaine Maxwell's attorneys will uh, likely focus on portraying the British socialites' accusers as untrustworthy and motivated by money uh, when they start presenting their cases, right? And it began on Thursday, right? They start presenting their cases on Thursday. That was today. Uh, prosecutors, prosecutors rested their case on Friday after two weeks of emotional and often explicit testimony. Um, let's see here. Uh, one of the witnesses that came in for Maxwell's defense um, is actually, it seems to be like uh, an elitist favorite, but I, I, don't, I don't, maybe it's just a, a Southern District of New York favorite. Um, let me see where that person is. Mm, no, the name will come up. Okay, well, uh, they brought in someone who uh, who basically is going to testify about these false memories and things like that. But anyways, uh, let's see. The attorney for Maxwell by the name of Bobby Sternheim uh, said uh, in her opening statement, this case is about memory manipulation and money. Okay. All right. So they have their tagline, right? They have their they have their headline. They have their sound bite. That sounds pretty good. Memory manipulation and money. That should stick to everyone's head, right? One of Maxwell's expected expert witnesses... Oh, here it is. Elizabeth Loftus. Yes, she testified. A psychologist who studies how people can be manipulated into having false memories. She has testified in or consulted for hundreds of trials, including those of O.J. Simpson and Harvey Weinstein. Okay? Um, But undermining the accuser's credibility remains an uphill battle, said Duncan Levine. Uh, Levin, managing partner at Tucker Levin PLLC. Uh, Levin says it's straight out of the playbook, but it's a heavy lift to ask jurors to discount what the accusers may be saying because they got money. The defense has said its case will last between two and four days. Ladies and gentlemen, this was supposed to be a six week trial. Uh, given the women's compelling testimony, the defense's best bet may be calling Maxwell herself. Nope, it's already been decided. She's not going to. She's not going to testify. Her defense team said that she is too frail to testify. That's their words, not mine. Okay. Um, and let's see what else we got here. Uh, Maxwell's team also intends to call attorneys for Jane and Carolyn 
Two of the women who testified that they were 14 when Epstein first abused them, Jane testified under a pseudonym and Carolyn testified using her first name. At issues whether Jane's attorney, Robert Glassman, told her that cooperating with prosecutors would assist her claim with the fund. So they're actually going to call their attorneys to the stand <laughs> to ask them if they were being honest and, uh, you know, lawful. That's insane. Uh, let's see here. Um, Jane testified that when she was awarded $5 million from the compensation fund established by Epstein's estate. So she was awarded $5 million. Similarly, Maxwell's attorney said they want to question Carolyn's attorney, Jack Scarola, about why Carolyn was uncooperative until there was the prospect of a payout. So yeah, they're just trying to put cracks of doubt into the minds of the jury with this is, is what it seems like. In a Wednesday letter, prosecutor, prosecutors asked U.S. District Attorney uh, Allison Nathan to bar the lawyers from being called to the stand, arguing that much of their testimony would violate attorney-client privilege and would not be relevant even in the instance where it did not. Uh, Jane testified that she did not believe helping prosecutors would boost her claim. Carolyn testified that money will never fix what Maxwell has done to me. Uh, the fund considered whether a claimant's assertions matched up with any law enforcement findings, but it is a stretch to say that cooperating enhanced the women's claims, said Lori Levinson, a professor at Loyola Law School. So I guess we will find out whether or not uh, Judge Allison Nathan is going to bar the lawyers from being called to the stand because uh, that article is done, ladies and gentlemen. And we don't know. But let's take another look at dear old Judge Nathan Allison. Okay. And guys, I try not to be that way. You guys probably would never believe me. It seems like, it seems like I always kind of uh, go there, right? <laughs> There's Judge Nathan, Al uh, Allison Nathan. Okay. Allison Nathan. All right. And before any of you guys say that I have something against lesbians, I have plenty of lesbian friends, okay? It's not that. It's that she was appointed by Obama. <laughs> Ghislaine Maxwell's judge up for appellate court promotion faces U.S. Senate panel. So this is where, uh, this is where uh, Judge Allison Nathan was yesterday. This is the reason why this uh, trial of the century, the most important trial in regards to human trafficking and uh, possibly exposing the demonic seedy underbelly of politicians, celebrities, and heads of business and state ever decided not to have a session. Again, they schedule these sessions in advance, well in advance. Uh, why is it that they had to schedule this session when they knew, they had to have known that she was going to be going before the U.S. Senate to see whether or not she would be approved for a promotion. And furthermore, I'm going to go dig up that, uh, that hearing and see if it was uh, recorded and see what goes on in there. I'm, I'm curious to know now whether or not this man... No, just kidding. <laughs> I need to stop being mean. Whether or not this woman... Uh, I don't know, guys, like it's just it is it is mind boggling to me. Let's get into this real quick. Um, the Manhattan federal judge overseeing the sex abuse trial of British socialite uh, Ghislaine Maxwell on Wednesday took a break 
from the high-profile case to go before uh, a U.S. Senate panel weighing whether to promote her to an appellate judgeship. Okay, and that is it. That's all this article had to say. (laughs) Oh, wait, I've reached the end of my article. Oh, sorry, guys, I didn't realize that this was behind a paywall. (coughs) But, But at least you know that's what's going on. Uh, This article from The Independent asks, um, who is Judge Allison Nathan? So let's take a little uh, exploration into this. Uh, Towards the end of a marathon cross-examination of pilot David Rogers on day eight of the Ghislaine Maxwell sex trial, trafficking trial, defense Christian Everdell paused to check the time. Uh, That, this is not... There again is Judge Allison Nathan. Okay, anyways. I'm just saying, guys. Okay, anyway, that was... That was... I don't know why I read that. I already knew that was a dumb way to start this article. Okay, uh, let's get down to who she is, right? Let's get down to who she is, because it's just going to recap the events and why they're there. Okay, so Judge Allison Nathan has also made crucial rulings such as when she declined to allow a schoolgirl's outfit found in Epstein's Manhattan townhouse during a 2019 FBI raid to be entered into evidence. Okay, so she didn't allow that to happen. Okay. Um, What else is going on here? And attorneys on both sides agreed that Miss Maxwell's little black book would not be shown to the jury after Judge Nathan warned against needless name-dropping, okay? So, uh, perhaps, perhaps uh, Poonslayer was right. Poonslayer said at the very beginning of this uh, episode, this broadcast, that, uh, well, I guess Poonslayer um, um, predicted, right, that uh, they won't be found, uh, she won't be found, she will be found guilty, but no one else will be held accountable. And isn't it interesting that the prosecutorial team, who consists of uh, James Comey's daughter, and again, the mother-in-law of the former secretary of the former governor, Nipple Rings Cuomo of New York, all of them agreed, let's not bring that little black book into this, because uh, our friends might get in trouble. I think that was Poonslayer that said that. I apologize if it wasn't. Um, Because after all, I cannot see that portion of my chat anymore, but uh, getting back into this... In a trial where every inch has been scrapped over, Judge Nathan has had to make dozens of borderline decisions about whether a particular line of questioning should be allowed. She often asks the attorney for the grounds of a particular objection, consults the court transcript, and only then offers an overruled or sustained. Uh, During especially harrowing testimony from the accuser known in court as Carolyn, Judge Nathan had to interject several times to direct the witness to comply with her orders. Okay. Judge Nathan has also shown a commitment to push the trial along at speed and sought to overcome unexpected hurdles. On the opening day, during a lengthy delay over jury swearing in, Judge Nathan personally called the HR department of one juror's employer to see if they would extend the length of time they paid for jury. Can you believe that? Can you imagine being the boss and getting a phone call and being like, hi, uh, my name is Judge Allison Nathan and I'm overseeing the Ghislaine Maxwell trial and I need to know if you will extend your employee's length of pay for this trial. 
Uh, we're going to try and wrap it up in less than six weeks. Pretty much. Yeah, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna go through this pretty quick. Yeah, it's pretty much an open and shut case, right? Uh, but if you could do that, that would be great. Could you imagine getting a call from the judge themselves? And now that employee, that employer is probably like, ah, that woman called me. <laughs> going to get their five minutes of fame right there, right? That is insane. Goodness. A hundred percent right there, Mike Mars. We can't expect the swamp to prosecute itself, but we can expect the unexpected <laughs> or never have expectations, I should say. And, uh, well, we'll see where this goes. Okay. All right. <laughs> this is insane stuff, guys. Um, let's see. I, I can't believe that. That is insane. Judge Nathan eventually reported back to the courtroom that the employer had extended its two weeks pay for jury service and the trial could begin. <laughs> that is insane. Oh my gosh. Prior to the trial, Judge Nathan denied Miss Maxwell's request to be released on bail four times due to her being a flight risk, right? So, you know, that's a, that's a, a feather in her cap. Miss Maxwell and supporters had offered to put up $28.5 million, agree to a 24-hour armed guards and renounce her citizenship in the United Kingdom and in France. A graduate of Cornell Law School, Judge Nathan was appointed in 2011 to the district court by then-president. See, they don't say former president. Barack Obama, Barry Sotero. Obozo, whatever you want to call him. She had previously served as an associate White House counsel and special assistant to President-select Obama and later as a special counsel to New York State Solicitor General. In 2019, Judge Nathan presided over a case involving Tesla founder and Time Person of the Year Elon Musk during an ongoing dispute with the SEC over Mr. Musk's use of social media Judge Nathan ordered the two parties to meet to decide what the billionaire should be allowed to post on Twitter. After the case was resolved, Mr. Musk said in a statement he had great respect for the judge. There is a photo of Mr. Musk. <laughs> Mr. Musk, that sounds like, I don't know, that sounds like a, a male stripper's name or something like that. Anyways, Judge Nathan also oversaw a request from a disgraced movie mogul, Harvey Weinstein, who in 2019 asked for an emergency appeal in connection with a sex trafficking charge he faced. <clears throat> she rejected Weinstein's claim, ruling that the order of a fellow judge who denied earlier that year was careful and convincing. Okay, so there's another feather in her cap. While presiding over the most high-profile case of her career, she is also preparing to go before the Senate for a confirmation vote after being selected by President Joe Biden. All right, this is one. Oh, oh, I can't believe I just said that. Those words just came out of my mouth. President-select Joe Biden, resident-in-chief, illegitimate Joe. Okay, I feel like a little bit better now. But um, Joe Biden has selected this woman, okay, for promotion to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit. If confirmed, she would be one rung on the judicial ladder before, below the Supreme Court. Do you see where they're angling this woman for, right? She is the, she is the next Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Except she's open about her sexuality. 
I mean, Ruth Bader Ginsburg did write a book and never changed her opinion on the right for uh, girls to be sex trafficked, but I guess that's a story for another day. Seems to me that whenever I bring that one up to liberal friends that I know or, or people, they just... I don't know. Anyways, uh, let's see here. If confirmed, she would be one rung, okay, one rung uh, on the judicial ladder below the Supreme Court and just the second and just the second openly LGBTQ woman to serve on a federal circuit court at just 49 years old. Just Nathan, just Nathan, Judge Nathan would still have plenty of time left to continue her ascent. She is no stranger to the Supreme Court, having clerked for former Justice John Paul Stevens. Her nomination to become a district court judge in 2011 was met with fierce objection by conservative groups, including Heritage Action for America, which threatened to push punish senators who voted to confirm her, according to The Advocate. If none of y'all have ever heard of The Advocate, and I don't think a lot of y'all will have, it is a like a gay magazine. Another uh, conservative activist organization, Concerned Women for America's Legislative Action Committee, reportedly wrote to senators to complain about her LGBTQ political activism and her judicial temperament. The group said Judge Nathan has had provided pro bono representation for the ACLU, Lambda Legal, Service Members Legal Defense, and individual service members in challenges to the so-called Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy. Her biases, biases are so ingrained and so much the main thrust of her career that it is not rational to believe that she will suddenly change once confirmed as a judge, they wrote, according to The Advocate. She was supported by New York Senator Chuck Schumer, who argued on the Senate floor there should not be a different standard for Judge Nathan. She was eventually confirmed 48 to 44, Judge Nathan and her partner, law professor Meg Satterwaite, Satterthwaite, are the parents of twin sons. So, there is an overview, ladies and gentlemen, on Judge Nathan Allison. Does all of that information necessarily mean that she will rule in favor of the globalists and elitists who are attempting to run this world? They already run it who are attempting to destroy everyone that they don't like, who are attempting to depopulate the planet. Well, I don't know. What does that smile tell you? <laughs> Anyways. All right, guys, let's move on. We're almost done here. Okay. Uh, next article, Ghislaine Maxwell's de- defense attorney begins after judge um, request for witnesses. Oh, after judge denies. So this was a good thing. Like I said, a uh, judge denied uh, the defense's request to have anonymous witnesses, right? Because they were afraid to be associated with it. Uh, but just real quick, we won't. Uh, this one we won't peer into as long. That's just basically the headline is what I wanted to share with you. Uh, but it says here, uh, in her decision, Judge Nathan Allison. I mean, Alice, I, I got to stop that. Look at what I got. My, I got myself into this endless Nathan Allison thing. Judge Allison Nathan of the U.S. District Court of the Southern District of New York wrote that the court, after significant independent research, could not identify a single case in which a court has previously granted the use of pseudonyms to defense witnesses, leading her to believe that the request was unprecedented. 
Nathan ruled that, unlike the government's witnesses who are granted anonymity, the defense's witnesses are expected to deny any sexual misconduct by Epstein and Maxwell, so they would not qualify as victims entitled to such protections. The defense claims regarding the high-profile nature of the case failed to sway the judge. And uh, there's a lovely uh, drawing for you guys. This is uh, Ghislaine Maxwell listens as attorney Bobby uh, Sternheim. Um, Sternheim's uh, question psychologist Elizabeth uh, Loftus during the trial of Maxwell, the Jeffrey Epstein associate accused of sex trafficking. Okay, so uh, they call them. They just refuse to Maxwell as the Jeffrey Epstein associate, not the former lover, <laughs> not the ex-girlfriend. Oh, this article has more that we can talk about, though, actually. Let's talk about... Let's talk about... Ugh, can we get this guy off the screen? I, I do not like John Travolta. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> Sorry. Let's talk about the witnesses. I think this is going to wrap it, guys. Thursday's first witness, Maxwell's former personal assistant... Uh, I guess that's Kimberly. I want to say Simberly. Kimberly Espinosa. Uh, described Maxwell as Epstein's estate manager and said that while Maxwell and Epstein behaved like a couple, they never lived together and that the relationship changed when they both began to date other people. Espinosa described Epstein as a giver and a kind person and testified that during her six years of employment, she never saw either Epstein or Maxwell behave inappropriately with underage girls. During cross-examination, however, she acknowledged... Whoopsies, wrong way. She acknowledged that she worked in Epstein's office and never at his homes where Maxwell's accusers allege their abuse took place. And then finally, a subsequent witness, University of California, Irvine, psychology professor Elizabeth Loftus, testified that sometimes people remember things differently than they actually were. Oh my God. Loftus, an expert, an expert on uh, the human memory, is not permitted to testify directly about any of Maxwell's accusers. Rather, she's only there to plant those seeds in the jurors, many of whom provided gut-wrenching tales of abuse. But she said that emotion is no guarantee you're dealing with an authentic memory. Mm-hmm. All right. She said, human memory doesn't work like a recording device, yada, yada, yada. There's that. Let's see what we got next. Hi, what is it? Oh, is this from Vanity Fair? Uh, Ghislaine Maxwell's prosecutors have rested their case. Okay, this is what, yeah. I'm like, you guys already rested your case and apparently you did not, you, uh, you decided not to move forward with a lot of stuff. Just real quick. Uh, let me see here. Now, uh, this article pretty much picks up where they're talking about uh, one of the victims who testified uh, that went under the uh, pseudonym of... Oh, no, no. Used her real name. That was Farmer, right? So it says here, after Farmer, their last victim or accuser testified, and her mother and a man she dated in high school corroborated some of the details of her account, the prosecution rested its case as it signaled it was ready to do earlier this week. The timing has come as something of a shock to even veteran court observers. Maxwell's trial was originally expected to last up to six weeks, but prosecutors said on Tuesday that they expected to rest their case as early as uh, Thursday. 
only for an attorney involved in the trial to fall ill that day, pushing back the proceedings to Friday. So they were going to end it on Thursday, guys. The announcement compounded the growing sense that the Thursday of last week, the announcement compounded the growing sense that the prosecution's case was thinner than expected for such a high profile affair. And it evidently surprised Maxwell's attorneys, too. On Wednesday, defense lawyer Christian Everdell told Judge Allison Nathan, given that they have now trimmed their case significantly in the last day, we are trying to hustle witnesses. And that Maxwell's team needed some time to prepare their case, Nathan agreed to let the defense begin its case Thursday, that's today, of next week, and said that the court wouldn't sit Monday through... Oh, they weren't even in session on Monday through Wednesday! The last time we reported on the Ghislaine Maxwell case here at the Sea Report was on Monday. And we were recapping last week. And we went into election fraud the last two days. Dang, guys. <laughs> they took four days, three days off. They took three days off. That is insane, y'all. What? Anyways, uh, the rest of this article just talks about the stuff we already talked about, about the uh, witnesses left us and the other one. Okay, real quick, guys, here's that connection. And again, I thank you, ladies and gentlemen, over at the pill.net and the foxhole.app community for sharing this information so that we could add it to the report. Uh, Ghislaine Maxwell's prosecutor's daughter-in-law shamed victims as Andrew Cuomo's, uh, Andrew Cuomo, uh, nipple rings Cuomo secretary. So here we're talking about the relationship between the lead prosecutor... In this trial, the one who's supposed to be going after Maxwell, and this is not, uh, this is not, uh, this is not hard evidence about their intent or the decisions. But like Mike Marsh said, you can't expect the uh, swamp to prosecute the swamp. Um, but just evidence. So we'll we'll take a quick look at this. We'll, we're going to do it because we covered this a lot when uh, we actually first went on air, and that had to do with Nipple Rings Cuomo, Andrew Cuomo, when he was the governor. And the uh, and the nursing home death scandal, right? So uh, let's take a quick back uh, trip into memory lane. Let's travel back in time, as some people like to say, but I don't. Um, we had an, we had an instance where this woman here. Let me go ahead and expand that so you guys can see her better. This woman right here, that is Melissa DeRoso. Okay, now Melissa DeRoso was the secretary for Nipple Rings Cuomo. Melissa DeRoso's mother-in-law is this woman here. Now, this is uh, um, Audrey Strauss, okay? Audrey Strauss is the lead prosecutor alongside with Maureen Comey, who is going uh, supposedly bringing a case against Ghislaine. But here again, as you guys just heard in that uh, last article, even the defense was surprised that they had trimmed their case as much as they had, all right? Now, the reason why this is significant is because not only was uh, Governor Cuomo um, coming under fire for the nursing home death scandal, then the whole sexual harassment scandal comes up. And I remember being on the air talking about how it's very convenient that his secretary is related to the, uh, the lead uh, attorney for the Southern District of New York, right? And I speculated that maybe... Should anything move forward with the with the nursing nursing home death trial, uh, that uh, the COVID death trial, 
that somehow there would be a cover for Melissa DeRosa. But the plot thickens, ladies and gentlemen, in regards to Melissa DeRosa. Now, some of y'all may or may not remember, but um, Melissa DeRosa actually let the cat out of the bag on Nipple Rings Cuomo. And uh, Melissa DeRosa admitted to botching the numbers of COVID deaths in nursing homes to the Democrat Party in New York. Okay, Melissa Joseph's like, I'm sorry we did this. We, I'm sorry we put you in this way. This, this, and, and I'm sorry that we're, we're hurting you politically, right? And so, like, this article from the New York Post talks about it. Melissa DeRosso, Cuomo aide and nursing home cover-up is related to top Fed executor, uh, prosecutor, okay? And uh, there's more, though. There's more. We're just, we're, just, we're just, you know, adding a little bit of fat to the story tonight. Um, and uh, so here it talks about... Uh, this is from the New York uh, Post again. If the Department of Justice investigates... The Cuomo administration's refusal to turn over data on nursing home deaths. A huge conflict would arise if the case were handed to the powerful Manhattan federal prosecutor. That's because Audrey Strauss, the U.S. attorney for the Southern District, is the mother-in-law of top Cuomo aide Melissa DeRosa, the figure at the center of the emerging scandal. The clamor demanding a probe into the cover-up of thousands of deaths have intensified after the Post reported DeRosa's stunning admissions that the Cuomo administration withheld the information from state lawmakers over the summer because it was worried federal prosecutors would use it against us. Those are in quotes. Uh, The Justice Department in late August had begun an inquiry into nursing home deaths in New York and elsewhere. And this is a quote from Melissa DeRosa. Talking to Democrat lawmakers, she says, and basically we froze. She says, we weren't sure. Um, we weren't sh- we weren't sure if what we were going to give to the Department of Justice or what we give to you guys and what we start saying was going to be used against us. And we weren't sure if there was going to be an investigation. She told lawmakers in a conference on Wednesday. Okay, and this is again, Aubrey Strauss, that's the mother-in-law. All right. Uh, DeRosa's admission led one observer to quip, did you freeze before or after you called your mother-in-law? Isn't that crazy? They even knew. Cuomo has been heavily criticized uh, for his mandate, etc. He should be behind bars for that. Um, let's see here. And uh, let's see here. Update. Here's another thing though. Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, a high school classmate of DeRosa. Okay. So apparently they had a falling out over, uh, over Cuomo. But before that, up until the year 2020, Elise Stefanik was best friends, was close as kin with Melissa DeRosa. Anyways, that's just another interesting factoid. Um, let's see here. Talks about uh, Strauss a little bit. Uh, Straw 73 became the top prosecutor in Manhattan after President Trump said he was firing Jeffrey Berman in June 2020. And Berman agreed to step down as long as Strauss, who had been his deputy, would become the acting U.S. Uh, attorney. Berman called her the smartest, most principled and effective lawyer, etc. Uh, DeRosa, 38, has been married to Strauss's son, Matthew Wing, 37, a former Cuomo spokesman since 2016. Okay. While the Southern District prosecutes many high-profile crimes, the case could be handled by the Northern District. So there's a little bit of that. Now, here's where the plot thickens, guys. 
And there you go again. That is, this is the lead prosecutor along with Maureen Comey against Ghislaine Maxwell. Now, I'm just like, I'm just like thinking kind of like, yes, you know, these, these people have, even Judge Nathan, yes, they have, uh, they prosecuted Weinstein. Yes, they, they, they've done some things that seem like, you know, it, it could be good. But do you think that these people really want... Do you, do you think these people really want the names from that black book to come out? Think about it. Judge Nathan said no black book. The, prosecutor, the prosecutorial team, including this woman, said no, we're not going to use it. Can you imagine that? Okay, here's where the plot thickens, really thickens, guys. Like, I think that this was a point that, like, was really worth fleshing out. Uh, because it's, it's, it's a little known factoid about the entire relationship between Melissa DeRosa, Nipple Rings Cuomo, the uh, Southern District of New York attorney, Aubrey, Audrey Strauss, and the COVID-19 nursing home death scandal. Okay, so uh, this one talks about, oh, I hope it gives me the names. I hope I pulled the right one. This, this article basically talks about how Melissa DeRosa's brother and father are lobbyists for the greater New York health systems and that they gave them, through Nipple Rings Cuomo, immunity. So Nipple Rings Cuomo gave the greater New York health system immunity so that they would not be charged with scandal over the nursing home death scandal, okay, and Melissa DeRosa is the sister of the lobbyists that got them all this money and protection, okay? Like, this is so inbred <laughs> and so crazy. Uh, let me shrink this article down so I can see what I'm looking at. Okay. Andrew Cuomo gave immunity to nursing home execs after big campaign donations. Now people are dying. Okay, so that was the gist right there. Uh, less than two years after the flood of cash from Greater New York Hospital Association, Cuomo signed legislation last month quietly shielding hospital nursing homes and hospital and nursing home executives from the threat of lawsuits stemming from the coronavirus outbreak. The provision inserted into an annual budget bill by Cuomo's aides created uh, one of the nation's most explicit immunity uh, protections for healthcare industry officials. Okay, so now we move a little further down. Okay. Uh, GNYH, a lobbying group for hospitals. Now, GNYH, that is Melissa DeRosa's family. Okay, that is her brother and her father. A lobbying group for hospital systems, including some of the uh, uh, some that own nursing homes, said it drafted and aggressively advocated for the immunity provisions. Okay. Um, let's move down a little bit further. Here's where we get to the real con. Okay. Immunity followed $2.3 million in campaign cash. The immunity provisions in Cuomo's budget came 18 months after GNYHA delivered $1.25 million to the Cuomo-controlled New York State Democrat Committee that was supporting the governor's re-election bid. The money went to the committee's so-called housekeeping account. 
The account, which can accept unlimited donations, is meant to support general party activities, but has also been used to promote Cuomo and his agenda in television ads, including his 2018 re-election campaign bid. The GNYHA donations, which were a huge increase from prior years, made the group of the New York Democrat Party's largest contributors during Cuomo's campaign. Three of the hospital associations... Uh, top officials separately gave more than $150,000 to Cuomo's campaign. Okay, so there you go with that. Big lobbying contracts. Okay, so here we go, guys. Another GNYH lobby firm is Bolton St. John's, which gave Cuomo's campaign $40,000 during 2018. That firm employs Giorgio DeRosa, and Joseph DeRosa, father and brother to Melissa DeRosa. Oh, wait, they say that too. The father, brother, and sister of Cuomo's top aide, Melissa DeRosa. Oh, oh, Jessica Davos, I was not aware, was the sister of Melissa DeRosa, who is secretary to the governor, okay? This is the daughter-in-law of the lead prosecutor against Ghislaine Maxwell. And this family, the DeRosa family, who uh, the top prosecutor is married into, is involved in all kinds of shenanigans. So we're not going to say that this, uh, we're not going to say that this bit of information lends any credence to the, the direction that this trial is going to go. But ladies and gentlemen of the uh, audience, I think it is... Uh, Good information to have, okay? Um, the governor's office has said Melissa DeRosa has been strategizing with hospital leadership and business executives across the state to ensure frontline workers have resources, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There you go, guys. We just want to get that on record again. This is actually the second time this story has cycled through the C-Report. We reported on this when it broke from the New York Post back in uh, spring, summer. So again, guys, these stories recycle, but that's okay. You know, we know it. We've known about Epstein for more than a decade. We've known for about more than two decades, but at some point things have to stick, you know, at some point things have to stick. And at some point, perhaps the truth really does break free. At some point, perhaps the truth really does sink into the hearts and minds of those who were not looking for it. And, uh, Justice is served. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that's a wrap for tonight's C Report. Thank you guys for being here with, uh, with us today. Thank you for being in the audience. Let me tell you what, guys. I don't know if I don't look like it or sound like it, but I was feeling oof today. And uh, uh, it, was, it was really nice being here with you all and having you in the audience. And uh, you guys look like you're having a good time out there. So I'm all for it. Uh, let me go ahead and uh, let's do our, our closing housekeeping. Again, guys, check us out at thecreport.com. Uh, subscribe to us for free on your, favorite podca- on your favorite podcast platform. And uh, you can always catch us on the, uh, catch us on the uh, podcast side if you don't get to catch us live. Otherwise, uh, you, know, you know, we'll see you next time for sure. Don't forget, um, Saturday, we will have an episode of Lone Star News. We're scheduling it at 3 p.m. Um, Central Time, Texas Time. And uh, we will have a guest on with us, America First candidate, Joey Afaji, 
will be joining us as he talks about his bid for local county judge here in the state of Texas. And we'll get more into it, what county he's running for and what all. Uh, But that should be a fun time. So we'll have a special guest on with us for Lone Star News on Saturday. For those of you new to the broadcast or uh, who are on the podcast side, uh, Lone Star News is another news show that we do here at uh, the C-Report and Mr. C-TV and the Mr. C-Channels. That is Texas... Uh, uh, Texas-focused news and local events. Uh, For all of those of you who are joining us tonight live, thank you again for being here with us. And uh, thank you for for being part of this audience. Uh, Casual, GG, Skeeterberg, WC Cranop, uh, Mike Mars. I know there's more of you guys out there. I'm just not seeing all your names. Thank you for being with us tonight. Rail Anon, all my lovely lurkers. WC Cranop, thank you again for... Oh, thank you for the shades, man. Thank you for providing a safe place to come back. Ah, uh, WC Crane, I'm making that comeback. <coughs> love it, ladies and gentlemen. Love it, love it, love it. Hey, guys, I like to keep my door open. So, all right. Always in Texas. One, two, three, SKG. Xena. All right. As the uh, gold the gold pill scratchings are coming up, I can see uh, who else is in the audience. Uh, it's been a lovely time, guys. All right. I got, I've taken up enough of your time. You guys have a great evening. We will see you tomorrow for another edition of the Sea Report. Until then, be safe, be blessed, and God bless America, and may justice be served.